Hello and welcome into the Feels Like 45 podcast. I'm Cade Webb, and as always, I am joined by Dustin Ragusa. Dustin, nice to see you back stateside. How are you doing this uh, this Tuesday evening? I'm doing good. It was a little weird. I think this is the first time in podcast history I haven't had a chance to watch most of a game either in person or at least live on TV. So that was a little weird having to kind of rewatch the game as my first initial watch, but I was able to get it done. Had a good time watching an Oklahoma State victory. How are you? I'm doing good. And it was probably an entertaining one to watch uh after the fact because watching it uh live was really kind of tales of two halves and and pins and needles in the first half and you know the pokes look great in the second half but uh yeah we're we're doing good man excited for obviously thanksgiving and hope all of our listeners have a fantastic uh weekend themselves but you know as i was sitting here thinking about you know this week for oklahoma state football you know as they close with byu if I would have told you, Dustin, that all they needed to do was win that game and they're likely in the Big 12 title at the beginning of the year, would you have believed me on that? Well, at the begin, like before the season, I picked them nine and three, and I actually had them going into the Big 12 championship game after the uh, Iowa State game. Right. We took questions on that pod and we said realistically five or six wins. I actually went back and listened to this. We said realistically five or six wins said seven wins would be because we got asked what would make a great season after that two and two start or a good season. And we said getting to seven. And like you just alluded to, they have a chance to get to nine in the regular season. So I, after that Iowa state loss, if you would have told me they were getting to nine, when I already set the bar of a good to great season at just getting to seven, I'd be completely shocked. And I think what's, What's really fun about this is if you looked at Saturday's game, is it not like the perfect microcosm for how this season has gone? Like the first half, you know, kind of inexplicable mistakes that we saw characteristic of the games against South Alabama and Central Florida. And in the second half, that looked like the Oklahoma State who ran all over uh, Kansas State, West Virginia, Oklahoma. And it's it's almost like that game in two halves, you got some of the best of what Oklahoma State's put on the field this season and the worst. And so for them to come out of that with a 13-point road win against a really hungry Houston team, uh, yeah, I, I'm doing pretty good. I, I think it was a great win. It was strange, too. We kind of mentioned this already, but being out of town and having the wedding going on, we were able to watch the first half because the wedding was in the afternoon. So getting ready, everybody got ready a little early. There were a couple other Oklahoma State fans, alums there with me, including my wife. And so we're watching a little bit of the game, but we're only watching the first half. So it's like, ah, and then you see the updates on your phone with what's going on. Well, when I rewatch the game, I think I've talked about this on the pod. The first time I rewatch, I watch the offense and then I watch the defense so going back and watching the defense, especially with that string of 
stops that they had and punts and just completely stalling the Houston offense. After watching the defense, I was like, man, that was a solid game from the defense because you don't see the pick six. You don't see the safety if you're just watching the defense back through the replay. And I watched it one more time before the pod fully through, and I still kind of felt that way about the Oklahoma State defense. And I felt that the Oklahoma State offense, aside from the safety and the pick six, had a really good game too. But the one kind of asterisk, Kate, I'll have is, and I'm not going to, because I don't want to, I don't want to go back on something I've said on the previous pod. I said Houston's the worst team in the Big 12, and I still think that. So as much credit as we're going to give these guys, I'm probably going to repeat myself with that statement multiple times throughout this podcast. They they were not very good. Um, they were as undisciplined as you would expect. And and we love Dana, but that they're, you know, uh, unsportsmanlike conduct penalties that they are prone to getting – that is a Dana Holgerson staple. I mean, that that's been the way his teams have been since he was at West Virginia. So it was again a Mike Gundy versus Dana Holgerson matchup that went the way you would think one of those would go based on what you've seen in history. So, you know, I would agree with that, Dustin. They're not a very good football team. Um, I thought that Oklahoma State's adjustment in the second half defensively to to put Colin Oliver into, you know, four down situations and move him around was a great adjustment, but it's, you know, it's one of the handful that they made, but it completely locked up Houston's offense for really the better part of two and a half, three quarters. So, you know, I I just thought it was a a coaching win in a game that you thought the coaches would help you win this game. Yeah, I completely agree. And as we kind of get into the offensive review, just a couple of notes on some press conferences and things like that. So just to go over the score as well, real quick, Kate, before I kick it back to you for a quick ad read, I don't think we've said it yet. 43 to 30 Cowboys scored 24 unanswered points to finish that game with the win, the 13 point victory. It was the largest comeback since the Fiesta bowl victory in 2021 over Notre Dame and Kate, I'll throw it back to you before we kind of get into some of that media stuff and break down the offense. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to get into it, but we we can't get any further without saying a quick thank you to our friends at Charlie Hustle and reminding you that this podcast is brought to you by our friends at Charlie Hustle Clothing Company. Charlie Hustle is a vintage inspired clothing company based out of Kansas City that specializes in collegiate and hometown apparel. Charlie Hustle wants you to be the best dressed fan this season, so be sure to check out their wide selection of officially licensed collegiate apparel today and show off your school spirit all season long. With over 30 schools to choose from, they've got you covered with all of your collegiate apparel needs, so shop today at www.charliehustle.com, and when you do use our promo code 101215 for 15% off all non-sale items, Charlie Hustle, vintage made fresh. Dustin, I'll throw it back to you for some notes on the game. Yeah, so I, the first thing I wanted to hit was Dana said in his presser after the game that he told Mike on the field that he thinks this is his best coaching job in like that and as long as Dana has known him. And that's that's been a long time. They've been on uh, on staff together. So I thought that was pretty cool to hear him say that and kind of give Mike Gundy praise. You even see Kalani uh, Sitaki in his presser this week previewing Oklahoma State for BY, for the BYU game give Oklahoma state a lot of credit, give Mike Gundy a ton of credit said he loves him. Not, uh, not as a, only as a coach, but in their interactions together. So it's cool to hear both of those from two different coaches talking about two different games, 
both about Mike Gundy back to back like that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it really is. And like, you know, for Oklahoma State fans who have followed this closely, like I, I don't know another team that could size up that comparison of best coaching job. I mean, this is this feels like an overachieving type of year based on what we've seen this team is capable of. So, you know, to hear other coaches that, you know, have his respect, that's that's pretty cool. So, Cade, we normally hit, you know, a few random notes, but a lot of the questions Gundy got asked related specifically to scheme. So we can kind of get into that for the I offense. Like it. But so Gundy said things didn't go well in the first quarter and a half. But if if you don't have strong chemistry and culture, you can't recover from that as a team. He's a, alluded to that so many times throughout this kind of six and one winning streak. I know, you know, they have the loss to UCF, but he even talked about it after that game. It's really interesting because he was, I, I, I can't remember him talking about that in the past couple of years. It was like a complete shift. You know, the athletic just came out with an article about it. And he's talking about how NIL and transfer portal, he said this before, but kind of hurt his feelings early on. So when he's talking about this chemistry and culture, I think he's not only talking about the players, but his attitude towards the players and kind of how everything has shifted over the past few years. And it sounds like from what all the players say, and I don't, and and the coaches, I don't think it's coach speak that they just have one of the best locker rooms that Oklahoma state has had in a while, which is super interesting because I I'll contrast this with a quote from Mike Gundy about Brian Nardo and how much his players love Brian Nardo, because he has, you know, the gist of it was he has genuine one-to-one relationships with them. And Mike Gundy basically called himself a hermit saying that he, you know, shows up to work. He doesn't have many friends, I think was his exact words. And so to hear that, like him talking about how great the locker room is, even with him admitting that like he hasn't changed a ton about who he is, at least his approach to, you know, team chemistry and the NIL and all those things. It has to play a a part in this. I mean, 11 months ago, we were talking about offensive line coaching changes and quarterback room coaching changes and all this transfer portal, you know, uh, nonsense that was taking place. And then you look up and, uh, you know, one of our boldest takes was that they they reloaded at a lot of spots and that came true. But I don't think it was on accident. I think that was a lot of Mike Gundy, you know, doing some of the dirty work. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I know that's not really scheme related, I guess. I just kind of wanted to call that out, especially after the big UCF loss. But when talking specifically about the offense, 501 total yards of offense. It, you saw right when the game started, Houston was going to do what a lot of teams have been trying to do to Oklahoma State lately. We've seen OU do it. We saw UCF do it really successfully, especially when they got up big and with the weather. They're changing their defensive line alignments. We talked about Houston running some four down, some odd front. They went some two, four, five. They even had a couple of situations. I I think on the pick six, even they only had two defensive linemen actually like on the line of scrimmage. And then some guys kind of off in some overhang spots. One of those guys ended up blitzing and we'll talk about the interception a little bit more later, but they're changing that up. They're sending safeties late into the box, playing heavy boxes, a lot of times it was number five, Hassan uh, Hypolite, who we talked about on the preview pod, coming into the box late. Gundy mentioned this. They found ways to run the ball in the second half. And you talked about Brian Nardo's adjustments. One of the big ones I saw from the offense was 
because they were doing this with the safety, what Oklahoma State started doing was putting heavy unbalanced formations to one side of the field. So trips with an inline tight end to that side, which was basically quads, and either leaving it that way or maybe motioning the tight end over there pre-snap. And then they were running their GH counter with the tight end and the backside guard pulling away from the trips. And what that does is that Houston can't really drop a safety into the box late when you got three receivers to one side of the field and potentially a fourth with the tight end. So it was giving them less, more still guys in the box, but not as many guys coming down from the third level late. So they were able to pull the guard, kick out, and then the tight end, normally Josiah Johnson, a couple of times it was the fullback, Braden Cassidy. He's taking a very vertical pull route and going straight up to that linebacker. And when Ollie busted the huge run, the 62-yarder, they ran that exact play I'm talking about. He had, I think, a nine-yard run on a later drive that was out of the exact same formation. And then when Houston started adjusting and still bringing a safety to that non-trip side, trying to get ready for that, foaming through the RPO out route to Brennan Presley on the other side for positive yards. So that was a, times, yeah. a, that was a great Casey Dunn and Mike Gundy adjustment at halftime. And I think that's what Gundy's alluding to when he talks about we found ways to run the ball in the second half. Yeah, it's an outstanding breakdown. I think you've gotten so used to seeing another guy in the box that on Ollie's long run, he's had several, but it's been a minute since he has. I was just, cause the camera angle wasn't great. I was just waiting for, you know, the safety to come over and turn it into, you know, a, a 15 yard gain rather than a 60 yard gain. And, and you talked about, you know, Brendan Presley, they were trying to get him the ball in so many different ways. They went back to what they did against OU lining him up as an outside receiver motioning him back into the slot, letting him run the route from the outside spot. And then when Houston started adjusting to that in the second half, they lined him up inside and motioned him outside. And Kate, I had 51% of the snaps, excluding the two kneel downs at the end of the game in victory formation, that included some form of pre-snap motion, whether that be tight end motion, Presley in the orbit motion, orbit return motion, that fast, cheetah motion that we talk about where the wide receiver gets a kind of running lateral start and that the snap jets up field. They did some tight end motion from H back. I showed a play where and what you and I actually talked about this off the pod where the tight end comes in what looks like ex escort motion where he's going to do the stone block. And then he stops and doubles back before the snap and blocks for GH counter back the other way, which is like a, I called it fake split zone, same side GH counter, which is a lot of words, but it's that cool of a play to kind of add some of that stuff in. I really liked the motion that they use in this game. 36% against UCF. I'm sure people are asking, why did they kind of go away from the motion after using a bunch against OU? But when you get down that big, Cade, we talked about it. you got to go turbo. Yep. There's no real point in motion if you're trying to go fast and do turbo. You're just kind of burning clock before the snap. It's a great, it's a great, simple way to think about it, and no question. I I thought that the, the play calling was outstanding. I said multiple times live, you know, great play call, especially on the alignment that, that Houston presented. So it definitely felt like one of Casey Dunn 
and Mike Gundy's better called games this year. And it's obvious it's easy to say that when you put up 43 points and, you know, 500 yards of offense. But even in the moment, it felt like that they were, you know, in control of what Houston was trying to do defensively and that they had answers for anything that they threw at them and loved the motion. I, I still love the escort motion, but this little wrinkle that they're they're you know acting like they're going to do it and then pull it back is is outstanding. I sent you a, a similar play this afternoon, so love what they're doing with that. They did it with Cassidy at fullback too, where it looked like he was going from the fullback spot spot to block across the formation, and then doubled back and went and blocked for GH counter. It was real. Or I actually think that one was that double tight end counter where Josiah Johnson's blocking as well. Kid, another cool motion that they did, and they've done this this year. They just did it quite a few times in this game. And this is a game where if some of the uh, OU X's and O guys want to call out Max Protect, seven-man Max Protect, they did actually do that quite a few times in this game. But what they were doing is they would split Josiah Johnson, the tight end, out wide, and then they would motion him back into the formation right before the snap and he would block the edge player in pass protection. So kind of surprising that edge guy who's going to be rushing the quarterback when he sees a straight drop back as a pass play. Yeah, 100%. Great, great breakdown on that. And it didn't feel like as much chipping as I was used to seeing over the last couple of weeks. No, it was some true seven-man max protection, get the ball out quick, some rollout stuff. And then... Dana mentioned it. We've talked about this so many times, so I wanted to bring it up again. He said in his pre- post-game presser, they wore us out in the third quarter. Rob Glass doing it again. They're wearing everybody out. The way that they've gone from having so many injuries last season to still, I mean, still having some injuries this year, but a lot more guys staying healthy on the offensive line, a lot more guys staying healthy, I feel like, in general, and just getting stronger as these games move through into the second half. It's just a, a testament to how great the strength and conditioning crew is with Rob glass and also how well he's able to work with the coaches. We talked about, you know, hearing some rumors of some issues with what the off- offensive line was doing in practice versus what they were working out that day. As far as in the weight room, it seems like all of that has been solved this season. Yeah. A, a great call out. It's not the first time either that it has been very apparent that Oklahoma State's the the team that's in better shape. We saw it in Morgantown. You could argue that we saw that against Kansas as well. I mean, Oklahoma State, I mean, we've said Rob Glass is on the Mount Rushmore for for a good reason, but a great call out from you. I mean, they are consistently the most physical team on the field, and if they're not, uh, I'm normally surprised. Even Central Florida, I didn't feel like over-physical to Oklahoma State, and this game got away from them. Yeah, and – Casey Dunn mentioned RPO game. You know, Ollie didn't get a handoff on that first drive. Three of those plays were RPO. And again, you know, we always mention this when we talk about the RPO. They could be telling Bowman to throw it no matter what if he gets a certain look and not so much a post-snap read. But these are plays where the offensive line is truly blocking run. Like if Bowman holds the ball, he's going to get an ineligible man downfield penalty. And Dunn talked about if Stevens are going to load up the box, we're going to go do it is basically what he said. He said it was working against UCF too. And we talked about that, but when you're trying to catch up, you got to start dropping back and getting the ball downfield. So a lot of RPO, a lot of RPOs to get Brennan Presley involved. Brennan Presley mentioned after the game that he said he, you know, he saw the game plan and was like, man, they're, they're going to me a lot. (laughs) And it ended up working out. Well, 
it's amazing that they can just kind of bob and weave based on the matchup that they're presented. I mean, this offense, you know, early in that game, it felt like they were not not getting away from the identity of what got them there. But I think between the Central Florida game, the way that went, and then the very beginning of that game where, yes, it was RPO, but Ollie barely touched the ball. Then Alan Bowman throws a pick six on the next drive. It felt like Oklahoma State was kind of losing it a little bit, and that was not the case. So, you know, great great stuff from you there. So a couple of other notes before we kind of get into the snap counts of some of the player breakdowns. Six of 11 on third down for Oklahoma State. They had 54% of their plays run on the opponent's side of the field. They rushed for 4.1 yards per carry on first down. We talked about that last week, only 2.7 yards per carry on first down against UCF. And I just, you know, wanted to note again, Gundy mentioned it, Dunn mentioned it. Houston showed so many different fronts in this game after seeing the success that UCF had and even some success OU had against Oklahoma State by doing that. And they all mentioned that some of these fronts were not ones they had seen on film or not ones they had seen on film very many times. I'd expect BYU is going to do the exact same thing when they did that to OU just last week. So, yeah, Mike Gundy even mentioned a little bit of that in his media availability that they do a lot of the same stunting and twisting. Uh, snap count wise, only 17 players played in this game. I think that was the fewest all season. Previous was 18 versus OU. One note on that 17, I, I do believe that, you know what, they may have actually, okay. It is now 18. I have PFF pulled up here. They did not have Materko's four snaps at left guard for Cole Birmingham. I actually County. noted noticed that. Yeah, so he played four snaps on the final drive of the first half, and Cole Birmingham went actually to the injury tent, the medical tent. PFF originally didn't have that. It looks like they have since. Yep, they have Materko for four. So 18 still, though, tied for the fewest amount of players on offense this season with the OU game. Cam Hurd. Got in the game as a wide receiver for victory formation. I'm not sure why, because normally they just have the starting receivers out there. So it would be Leon Johnson and Rashad Owens. Because, Kate, if you remember the game that Bray got hurt, I noted that Leon Johnson came in for a few snaps and then was also in for the victory formation. So hopefully that's not a sign that somebody got oh, injured, but I just I wanted to call it out there. I don't like that. You should have kept that one to yourself. <laughs> And then no Blaine Green after seeing him last yep. week. When Oklahoma State went 10 personnel, they had Kale Cabanis yep. in the H-back spot. So I'm not sure he – I didn't see Green on the injury report. I didn't hear Robert Allen talk the, about it. The I, only I went back and actually listened to the post game because they have it up on the varsity app after the games, and I didn't hear any mention about Blaine Green. The only thing I heard about Blaine Green since the game was Mike Gundy saying eight should be back against BYU. And he doesn't normally okay. say stuff like that, but he did say that. So very strange. I've I've expected him to be available for several weeks now. And we see the return of Jaden Bray. Only 15 snaps. I think they're probably going to use him pretty heavily in the BYU game. He apparently practiced last week. Cole Birmingham practiced last week. Joe Mahalski practiced. Yep. I think... It sounded like Robert Allen, he didn't say this exactly, but it sounded like it was one of Cole Birmingham's only full weeks of practice Holy all season. Cow. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. Uh, Dave Hunziker noted in the pregame that everybody's getting healthier, but that's kind of all he said on the offensive line. So, Which is kind of incredible moving into possibly a potential Big 12 championship run yeah. after what we saw last season down the stretch. No question. No question. Uh, heavy 11 personnel, Cade, in this game, 
Not very much tin personnel. I believe, you know, with having no Blaine Green, having a lot of the injuries at wide receiver, you didn't see a lot of tin personnel. You actually saw, again, for multiple games in a row, we've seen heavy 21 personnel, which would include Cassidy and Josiah Johnson on the field together. It seems like they're kind of moving away from some of the diamond formation stuff that you and I haven't been a huge fan of where it's Cassidy and Schultz. Right. It, when they went to diamond formation in this game, it was Cassidy and Johnson. Also love that they threw the fade off of diamond formation, which is the Dana Holgerson special that he did at Oklahoma state. So we saw that, but I only have Jake Schultz for one snap. I don't have Quentin Stewart for any on offense. It feels like they're going to kind of ride Josiah and Cassidy going forward. And I personally think that's the best choice. No shot to Jake Schultz. It's just no real receiving threat there. And if you have Cassidy and Johnson out there, not only do you have two really talented blockers, but Johnson is a talented receiver as well. Well, and to your point, uh, you don't have a Justin Blackman running around out there that you can run the diamond face exactly. to. So that's a, a great point. That's a great point with the with the receiver death. Uh, we saw some stacked wide receiver stuff. I you know I mentioned that we saw a lot of trips, a lot of inline tight end in this game, which we saw a lot of that against OU as well. Cade, let's move into the position groups. We've already talked a bunch, a lot of me rambling. Sorry for that. Into the offensive line. OSU didn't allow a sack in in a game for the fifth time this season and the fourth time in its last five games. The Cowboys have allowed just two sacks in their last seven games while recording 14 sacks of their own on defense during that stretch. I mentioned Mahalski and Cole Birmingham, both back fully at practice and Kate, before I throw it back to you, the last note that I wanted to set is I think it was when Mike Gundy was asked what he was thankful for football wise in the presser yeah. this week, speak, talking about Thanksgiving, they asked him kind of what he's thankful for in general. And then I believe that this was, I, I may be misremembering, but I think it was from this part. He said, figuring out how to run block. No, that's made what this he said. Year extremely fun. Yeah. And it's very true. I think to your initial comment, you can't forget about how well they're pass blocking. I mean, we, we've called this out really since Oklahoma State started going on this on this heater. It was predicated on the offensive line play, running the football. But Alan Bowman has been able to get comfortable in the pocket. I mean, if you go back and watch, I don't know the total hurries that they have calculated, but if you go back and watch, it felt like Alan Bowman could have like packed a lunch back there most of the day. So, you know, a credit to Oklahoma State's offensive line again, because this is something that they're hanging their hat on. I mean, and if they're going to make a run at a Big 12 title, they're going to have to continue to do that against some a really good defensive line uh, in Texas. So th- this is uh, it's a good thing to see this, uh, but the competition's potentially about to ramp up quite a bit. Yeah, I completely agree. And, it, you know, Stat Broadcast has four QB hurries for Houston. PFS has six, but again, Bowman could have completed those yeah. passes. And with the amount of pressure that Houston was bringing, I mean, the fact that they, so PFF has Alan Bowman under pressure only 16% of the time, which is funny because it's been around 16, 17, 18% yeah, it has. for several games. 16% of the time, they have him blitzed. 47% of his dropbacks. I had I had Houston bringing five or more pressures 15 times. Again, it was a little hard sometimes because there were a couple of times where it was RPO 
but it looked like they were bringing pressure no matter what. So I counted it, but that's fairly in line with PFF 15 versus they have 20 dropbacks where he was blitzed and to only be under pressure 16 times is pretty incredible. Now I do need to note again, you know, we talked about kind of coming back at some of the OUXs and O guys after they were calling out seven man protections after that game, there were quite a few max protect six and seven man protections. So that does help but Houston was bringing five or more at times. So if you're max protecting with six and they're bringing five or more, that's kind of all square again, that of even matchup in Oklahoma state still blocked really well. Yeah. They've, they've done an incredible job. And what's again, I kind of go back to their ability to kind of navigate through what each individual team does, because you've gotten some really interesting defensive looks from Oklahoma to central Florida to Houston, three teams that want to do some similar things, but some different looks and Oklahoma state's offensive line has, has handled it extremely well. And we'll get to Alan Bowman, but outside of one mistake on Saturday from him, he has handled it extremely well too. So. Yeah. And kid, the offensive line section might be kind of short this week, we talk about this whenever the guys play really well. I just don't, I don't have a ton of specific like notes to call out on them. I did think we talked about him practicing the full week. Hopefully he's able to do that again, even though he got a little banged up. Cole Birmingham, he was awesome in pass protection. I put the clip of him pancaking on the GH counter. I thought his pulls, he looked like a man possessed pulling. It's the fastest I've seen him look. I, again, I didn't think it was like a completely flawless game from Cole Birmingham, but I thought it was his best game of the season by far. And if he can play like that against BYU and if Oklahoma State's able to win that game and in the Big 12 championship game, it just makes this team and this offensive line so much better because left guard has been a weak link since Brooks went down. You know, Cole Birmingham has been solid, but Brooks showed some... Brooks broke open some runs for Ollie Gordon, and we weren't seeing that as much out of Cole Birmingham or Taylor Materko. So it's awesome to see Cole play like this this late in the season. And no question. He had a a play. It was a Brennan Presley reverse that Ollie kind of whiffed on anybody, didn't really touch anybody. I'm sure you saw this in your review, but Birmingham was coming around the corner and noticed that Ollie didn't block anybody and very quickly like recovered <laughs> Ollie's block and saved what was probably a one yard loss and made it a two yard gain. But uh, it was very it was very much like Cole Birmingham knew who was supposed to be blocked there and really a, a small play in the grand scheme of things. But like he it looks like he knows where he's supposed to be. And and he's he's filled in great for Jason Brooks. That was one I was really concerned about uh, when he went down. Yeah, I, I think it's a great call. That was an awesome play. Staying on the left side, Dalton Cooper. PFF has him with a one QB pressure hurry. I thought his pass pro, I thought he struggled a little bit with some of Houston's speed, but I'm talking about just a little bit. Like if I had to grade probably the weakest pass protection spot on the offensive line this game, it might have been that left tackle spot, but I still thought he was really good overall in the game. But he was really good as a run blocker. He had the holding on the two-point conversion attempt, which you know isn't great. But outside of that, I thought he was really, really good in this game. And he's just been so consistent all year. And for yep. me to even mention him having a few slip-ups in pass pro, and yeah, you know, like and the offensive line still having the day that they did is so impressive. He's He's been 
I I would say one of the unsung heroes of of this season because if you don't have him on the left side, you don't see Oklahoma State establish the run game early on in the year like they were able to because they were doing it off the left side. Then they became more balanced as the year has gone on. But Dalton Cooper has been phenomenal. He's he's made some mistakes, but he has turned into the guy that. I think you and I both hoped he would when he transferred into Oklahoma state and credit for the coaches to put him there. Cause it was, it was a couple of games in before you started to see him finally take that, take that spot. And so credit to them. He's, he's very much the best left tackle on campus. No question. Yeah. He's been awesome. Joe Mahalski. Kate, if he doesn't have the bad snaps mm. in this game, it was, I mean, he dominated Houston's nose tackle. And even when they weren't in a true zero tech or shaded, he was absolutely dominant in the red zone in pass pro. It was, he's been good all season. It was, I think one of his better games and he just was showing some physicality, which I know personally, I questioned moving into the season. It was one of the things I was worried about with Joe Mahoski is his physicality at the beginning of the year. I thought, you know, he didn't look super physical, but as it's moved on, I think he's going to be recognized in the All-Big 12 awards. I think he should, especially the way his play has been over the last month. I mean, it's not like he was bad in the beginning of the year, but he's been awesome for really like four straight games. And when he has a chance to not be right in front of, I mean, name, name a great nose tackle in this conference. If they're not directly in front of him, he's usually going to have a very good game. So and and he's even handled that better when they do shade that defensive tackle in that zero tech spot. So I I Mahalski, you know, speaking of unsung heroes, like he's going to be a guy that if he comes back next year, he's going to be an anchor on the offensive line. Like you will 100% look forward to having him back if in fact he does. So just a great year all around from him. Yeah, possibly on some preseason center watch list and Big 12 watch list for Mahalski. So he was great again. Again, if you could just clean up some of the snaps. It what be... is that? Why does it just keep happening? And sometimes he literally, it's like a rocket back there to Bowman. It's like the fastest snap I've ever seen, but he doesn't do that every time. So it's just, it's very strange, the velocity on some of those. Well, but it makes me really nervous. So <laughs> it really does. It really does. Okay, moving on to Preston Wilson, big bounce back game after we kind of threw him under the bus a little bit at UCF. Wilson, similar to Mahalski, absolutely dominant, like moving guys three, four, five y- yards off the line of scrimmage, not only down blocking where you get kind of an advantage as an offensive lineman, but on true zone runs, just pushing the guy in front of him backwards. I thought he was great as a puller when they asked him to kind of change. I talked about it already, but how they both the tight end or fullback and the pulling guard kind of changed their pull path in the second half. He got down that line very quickly, made a good block. The rest of the offensive line is down blocking. Well, nobody's allowing any penetration, just beautiful on all the counter, all the pull plays. And I thought Wilson was a big part of that. I have uh, subscribed to your take that normally Preston Wilson doesn't jump off the page one way or the other. I thought this was one of his, you know, most wow worthy games. He had a couple of like big time blocks, but I generally like agree with you completely on that. Yeah. And then my only note on Springfield, I wrote great stuff from Jake. Oh, great stuff from Jake. I love that. Is that any different (laughs) than what we're used to seeing from him though? No, he's been consistent as well. I thought he was really good. 
I didn't see, you know, there were a couple times maybe he didn't hold for as long as he needed to in pass pro, but I didn't see any complete whiffs, which had been a problem previously in his career. And even at times this season, I thought it was a nice bounce back game from him after two games ago, maybe his best game ever. Last game kind of struggled as as everybody did. And then he comes back this game and maybe has like his second or third best game ever. <laughs> That's a great point. Everybody struggled last week. You throw that one out the window. I, I think you're seeing something in Jake Springfield and Joe Mahalski. Like these guys are are rounding the corner. They looked upset about the UCF loss in this game. Like they came out firing off the ball because it wasn't it wasn't really. I noted this too, Kate. I didn't bring it up early. I'm scrolling back up on my notes. Early in the game, it wasn't so much that the blocking was bad. It was that Oklahoma State, the way they were running their counter runs, they just weren't taking the best pull paths to kind of attack. And they were, and then Houston also is bringing that safety down into the box because it was so early in the game and they hadn't been hit on a thousand Brennan Presley mm-hmm. RPOs yet. So it wasn't the offensive line's fault. I didn't think it was the fact that Ollie's having to make two guys miss in the hole. And that's pretty impossible for anybody not named Barry Sanders. <laughs> no, hundred percent. I think that was that was it. Uh, run game wise, as we get into Ollie, I counted twelve zone runs. We saw wide zone, wide split zone, inside zone, and split inside. So pretty typical. Counted seventeen counter runs. They basically ran all counter in the second half. Gh, we even saw the return of GT counter early in the second half. I'm assuming that was a. Hey, maybe GT counter will work. It didn't on that play, but I do love that they tried it. Double tight end counter on the Ollie TD in the third quarter. So definitely kept with the counter game. The GH counter has been, or GY, H counter, whatever you want to call it. They did that split, fake split zone, same side GH counter. We saw HB draw again, successful again. It seems like they're kind of, after not using it at all, they kind of have started to sprinkle that in once or twice a game. Saw ISO, and then we saw the reverse to Brennan Presley, which honestly, I thought he was going to outrun those guys. And then that defender made a really good play. But we talked about changing the aim and aiming points. We talked about adjusting how the RPOs are being thrown. I know this isn't talking about the passing game, but if you noticed, Oklahoma State loves that glance RPO, where it's kind of a five-step slant instead of a three-step slant, but not really a post and they'll run that tagged with the run play. Well, Houston started dropping a safety right where that route goes for Brennan Presley. Just switched it to the out route. I loved that adjustment as well. Yeah, they, they really did. It seemed like a cat and mouse game, and Oklahoma State was uh, was the cat in this situation because anything Houston threw at them, they were, they were ready for it, felt like. So, Ollie Gordon, Gundy said he thinks he's okay injury-wise. He was in the boot. He went to the medical tent, but he came back into the game Ollie, as he said, I think before this year, if we had a game tomorrow, I'd be good to go. Hopefully he's good to go. If he has a huge game against BYU, he's probably going to win most of the running back awards. Doak Walker, he sees a semifinalist there. 164 yards, three touchdowns, 6.6 yards per carry. He had the 62-yard rush. It was his seventh 100-yard rushing game of the season. He now ha- he also now has three carries of 60 plus yards this season with the other two going for 71 and 75 in big 12 play. Ollie has rushed for 1,305 yards four- and 14 touchdowns. That's an average of 163.1 rushing yards per game and 1.75 
touchdowns per game. I need he to also he also had five receptions for 16 yards as well and seven targets in the game. I need to go back and find the clip, but you and I had a conversation early on in the season talking about Oklahoma State's, you know, running ability and it seemed like it was a little bit better than we were used to. And we had a conversation about like, they could have like an 800, 900 yard rusher in this offense. And we we (laughs) felt like that was like a bold statement at the time. Well, they, if they would have played Ollie Gordon, we may have had a 2000 yard rusher at that point when we were having that conversation. Yeah, we were, I think we got called out and even called ourselves up for being a little aggressive in those average yards per I game, think so. average rushing yards per game. And I think we're going to go well over that when we look back. Okay, the big thing after having a game with, I think, one missed tackle forced, he had six in this game, three 10-plus yard runs. He did have the fumble, which was on the same side, fake split zone GH counter, which sucked because that there was actually a hole open there. That fumble would have been huge. I'm not really sure what happened there it looked like just a bad exchange but man he's he's got a chill on dropping the ball on the ground between that and the high snap over bowman's head this was a game that was trying to kill me i mean it that was i i actually dustin my dad can attest to this on the play where that ball got put on the ground from ollie i said hold on to the ball like right at the snap because I just had this feeling something was coming because it felt like Oklahoma State was right in control. He he can back me up on this. I said, take care of the ball. And within a second, they dropped it. So thank, thank goodness they grabbed the ball. The slant to Ollie out of empty was awesome. So I, I don't know if you noticed, but they actually ran that snag concept on the on the other side. So they've done this before. The backside route concept is double slants. I'm assuming if Bowman sees something he likes pre-snap, he throws the slants. He's thrown it to Leon Johnson before where they've run snag on the other side. So this time it was just Ollie Gordon out there and empty. It's a new, I haven't seen them do that. I haven't even seen him run that route as the I don't think inside I receiver either. out there. So it's pretty interesting. I, I, I don't think I have either. Great call. The only, so there were a couple of holes. I think Ollie maybe made not the best cut, but the only big miss I saw from him was the first play of the fourth quarter. It was split zone and Ollie must have talked to the offensive line at the end of the third quarter and said, Hey, I see something I like busting this back to the perimeter on the boundary side because Cassidy comes over from the H back spot makes his split zone block, and there is a monster hole to run through right there between the right tackle and Cassidy. And Ollie just took the handoff and went straight left. So that was the only one. I will say Cassidy makes that block a little slower than Josiah. So maybe Ollie just didn't want to be patient there. But that's the only like big miss I saw, Kate, unless I'm missing one. Again, I think he made maybe the wrong choice on a couple, but we called him out in the past couple of games for missing two or three big holes. That's the only one I saw. I think that these were abnormally large holes for him to run through. Oklahoma State's oh, offensive yeah. line was dealing, dealing on Saturday. So I felt like the, it was a little bit simpler for Ollie in, in this case, but I totally agree with you. He, he has made those mistakes before they were not as plentiful on Saturday. No, he had a great game and you know, we don't have, Many notes on him because he had such a great I like game. It. But I like I it. thought Ollie ran hard. He 
he's so tough to bring down. It's just the yards after contact are absolutely incredible. Every single game, I mean, except the UCF game, he had 71 yards after contact in this game of his 162 yards. And the 62-yard run, he wasn't touched. So basically, all of his other yards were after contact. I mean, credit also to the Houston defender for coming across the field to make that play. I thought Ollie was just going to walk backwards into the end zone. Yeah, it, you know, he maybe was a little slowed up. He's out. You can still tell he's banged up. And the fact that he got that many yards in this game, 164 yards yeah. that banged up is pretty incredible. Kate, I did want to mention, we were asking about Elijah Collins and yep. why he didn't come into the game when Ollie Gordon, he was, so he was finally listed on the injury, injury report He's been dealing with an ankle sprain. And I think that's why we haven't, I don't know when he injured it, but apparently he's been week to week, game to game. And I think that's why we haven't seen him very much. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they maybe, and I could be completely wrong on the ruling here based on how much he's already played, but I wouldn't be surprised if they try to get a medical waiver for him. Oh, wow. I hadn't even considered that but I would think that he would be a pretty strong candidate for that. He hasn't played since the beginning of the season. He has not played very much at all besides maybe some special teams. Now I know that counts as playing in a game, so I don't know how much that hurts his chances, but if you're looking at total snaps, he does not have very many after those first three games, man, I would think that he would be right there on that borderline. And the the NCAA seems to be totally handling these on a case-by-case basis with no real precedent set. So I would think he applies, and we'll see what happens. And Nixon comes in, and they do that trips, unbalanced GH counter in the second half, and he's got a running lane, and I have no idea why he cut it back into the middle. He kind of cut it back into, like, the A-gap almost. I I don't know. He could have just busted. He honestly could have busted it wide, which I always feel like because – People have labeled him as the speed back. He doesn't always love trying to bust plays wide instantly. But that one, he could have either busted wide or just followed the pullers. And there was another play. I actually don't have it noted what what time it was. But there was another play where I thought he had a cutback lane that he missed on split zone. So it's tough to see him run it five times and call him out for two bad misses. Because with how we've talked about him on this podcast, it feels like we're just coming after him to come after him. But man, it would be nice to have Elijah Collins for some of these. Yeah, it's it's just from a the drop off is so significant from Ollie to to Jaden Nixon, and and you don't really have even a similarity between them. Like they they are two unsimilar backs, and it doesn't seem like he's he's getting better in his limited reps. It doesn't seem like this is improving for him. So it's like I don't think we're just calling him out. I think I, it's just the unfortunate reality. It has been the same story when he gets put into the game. Yeah, I, I agree. Wide receiver wise, Kate, if you're ready to move to them, Dijon yeah. Stribling pokes report is reporting that his cast is coming off. He's back at practice working out with the team. I don't know what they mean by postseason play. If that means the big 12 championship game, but man, if you make it there and surprise Texas with Dijon Stribling, Jaden Bray, Rashad Owens, Leon Johnson, Brendan Presley, all those guys fully healthy and back, not to mention Josiah Johnson and Holly Gordon. That would be huge because they basically have zero film on Stribling. I mean, I already feel like it's a winnable game for Oklahoma State. 
but that would that would uh, put me in full tilt if they could get Stribling <laughs> back for that game. It sounds like Shetron, there's a chance. Cabanus also hurt his collarbone, is my understanding, and came back. So maybe Shetron could make it for the bowl game. There would be a huge, you know, gap in time there to where he could come back. It would be cool to have him back just to continue to get him reps, not only in bowl practices, but uh, maybe another game. Because he, as we've noted, we obviously think he's got several areas of development to kind of become that guy we think he can be. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Four missed tackles forced for the wide receivers. Wanted to call it out because they had like zero last game, and I've been calling them out on that. Pretty much Auburn and Presley, but it was awesome. Let's start with him, Cade. 15 receptions, 189 yards, 19 targets. They motioned him so much in this game. Gundy said he was fantastic. I thought what Dunn said about him after the game when asked about his kind of development through his Oklahoma State career, he said he wasn't a true natural receiver when he first came into the program, but he's developed into one. Might have been kind of a low-key shot at Braylon Presley there, honestly, with Dunn making that comment. Again, we love conspiracy theories on here. 98 yards after the catch, all four of those missed tackles forced were his. He was credited for 10 first downs in this game and he was three of five on contested catches the small guy the slot guy three of five on contested catches we've talked about him being the possession guy but i've never you know not to draw a comparison and give a compliment to look to our little brother down south but drake stoops is like a really good wide receiver and he's a possession guy gets to the sticks he's a chain mover and brendan presley does a lot of good things but I have not really considered him like the chain mover of the Oklahoma State offense. On Saturday, though, it was like everything that I had ever thought he could be, he was. And his route running was outstanding. He was he was at the sticks or beyond them every time he had to be. I mean, Oklahoma State, like without him on that on Saturday, I don't know how they how they operate. I mean, you could throw Blaine Green out there, but Brennan Presley was obviously integral to what they were trying to do offensively and to have 15 catches on 16 targets is a compliment to him and a compliment to Alan Bowman because they were on the same page the entire game and you have to wonder I mean what what Houston was doing I mean were they just good with that the entire game and apparently but the the lack of you know adjustment to try to take him out was astounding because Oklahoma State was just cherry picking it felt like yeah, so Houston was what they did. We they did exactly what Dana. I mean, Dana basically telling people what coverage they run in these pressers. So <laughs> they get up on you and press man. They also like to bail into cover three, which UCF does a lot of that too. They did a, quite a few cover two variations in this, in this game. A lot of the uh, local media, their favorite word this week because I think a couple guys said it after the game in the post game. I think Bowman was one. Is cloud cloud coverage so that cloud that cover two corner that's just chilling in the flat we talk about it you you know it's kind of cloud there's different variations you know one side could not be playing cover two so then only one guy's the cloud corner but houston ran some cover two in this game i hadn't seen them do a ton of that and they did some different variations again i didn't watch every single houston game but i watched four of them i didn't see a ton of that so like you mentioned they were mixing things up and oklahoma state was just adjusting to it with these option routes that Brendan Presley is running. 
one of the big things that I saw that Casey right. Dunn, I think is a credit to Casey Dunn and a credit to Brennan Presley and Alan Bowman is when Houston started trying to take certain things away, Oklahoma state instantly had the counter punch. I talked about it earlier. They were kind of like the safety to explain it basically at the snap. He was kind of coming down and turning his body to almost catch Brennan Presley in the glance route as he's cutting towards the middle of the field. And instead Presley's running to the flat and that corner is getting drug up field by Rashad Owens or Leon Johnson running the fade, the out, the go. So Presley's wide open underneath. So it's like whatever Houston did to try to take Presley's route away, they had the option to run that route and run that RPO a different way. And like you mentioned, Bowen and Presley were so in sync with each other. It was amazing to watch. I honestly, it's almost, I think you'd have to go back to Mason Rudolph, James Washington to see the chemistry between a quarterback and receiver because Spencer had great chemistry with his guys, but in one single game watching something like that, that was pretty incredible. And Bowman honestly missed him on one where they were still kind of on the same page. Presley extended that glance route to honestly more of a post and Bowman threw it and just let him. It was just an inaccurate throw, but it's not like he missed him completely. He'll walk he in touchdown. Out a little too. Yeah, that, that one would have been a TD. So it, and then, you know, he threw a couple that Presley kind of saved him on with some great catches, taking huge shots, which we haven't even talked about yet. He got absolutely smoked multiple times in this game. He's not a big guy and he just gets right back up and keeps going. Yeah, I I, I made a comment during the game that his toughness does not get enough credit. I mean, he's he's a 175 pounds and he takes some of those hits and it never looks like it it affects him. So, you hope that continues to be the case, but I love the Rudolph Washington take that you just made. I mean, how many times on Saturday I'd have to go back and actually count and see how many times they ran this. Did they run the motion to the far side? out to the sticks and he's wide open and Houston can't defend it. And Bowman's That's right a hard there. throw, a hard throw and a, a little bit of a, uh, it's a timing thing. Like if you have a cheating corner or a safety coming in, like that can get dangerous, but Oklahoma okay, state just use the word. Yes. Cloud 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 corner. <laughs> no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the bait. I, if you have that, no, but man, you're right. If you have that man there, that can be a dangerous throw. But Oklahoma State never once put that one in in a position it shouldn't have been. They just him and Bowman were on in a different level on Saturday. It was beautiful to watch. I'm glad you called out that route because I hadn't mentioned it yet. So great call out for you on that. He ran so many different routes. We saw some speed outs. We saw the deeper outs. You saw him run the dig. They even did that fast cheetah motion. And they've done, they did this in a previous game where he kind of ran the deep in the dig off of it. So he kind of goes out, up, and then back in. They actually did that, and Bowman almost threw a pick on this play, kind of trying to throw the ball away because of a pressure. But I didn't count it as a turnover-worthy play on that one. But the route that Presley ran, it was like a shorter version of that deep dig. It was almost just a straight-up kind of five-yard in off that motion. So that was kind of a cool route. He ran the tunnel screen. They hit him on that. The just regular kind of now wide receiver screen. He was all over the field, and he is now sixth all-time tied with Dylan Stoner with 191 receptions, and he's ninth all-time in receiving yards with 2,213. 
moving him ahead of Josh Stewart. And his numbers in this game were both career highs, if I didn't mention that earlier. It's the 15 receptions marked the second most by a Cowboy in program history, just one shy of Alex Lloyd, who recorded 16 receptions versus Kansas in 1949. Insane. So, Kate, I also did this was this one I thought was really interesting as well. It was he's the first Cowboy with 100 receiving yards in a first half since 2020 when Dylan Stoner did it against Baylor. I would have thought Oklahoma State had done that like every year. You would naturally think that, but they haven't been awesome at receiver in a couple of years. Like they've been missing that guy. So it makes sense to me. I actually was going to make a comment that I can't believe Dylan Stoner had 191 catches in his career at Oklahoma State, but he played for like eight years. So it makes (laughs) sense. But yeah, I mean, all the accolades you want to throw Brendan Presley's way are he's deserving of this week. I mean, that was that was heroic. Starting to talk about, you know, whether he's going to come back with the COVID year or maybe test the NFL. I I would think he's coming back. I mean, I, I, I agree, but it's getting to that point where, yeah. man, this guy's probably catching some eyes. I would think so with, with plays like that. He also Plus, got robbed of a touchdown. He, he yes. did not step out of bounds on that play. No, and his run after catch ability, you calling that out, was amazing in this game. But I, I even think the NFL teams – even. They probably don't love that he's taking the hits, but the fact that he can get back up from them is pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. You got to think they like that. Cade, not talking about the other wide receivers, not a ton of receptions. You had Owens, three receptions for 65 yards. Uh, Josiah Johnson, we'll, we'll get to Josiah. Leon Johnson, LJ3, had two receptions for 34 yards and a touchdown. And Jaden Bray had one reception for 23 yards and a touchdown. Cade, three of those six receptions that I just called out were fade balls. Not a great day to be a fade ball hater in this Um, game. No, it was not. And not a good day to uh, wonder about Alan Bowman's fade ball accuracy because he was dropping some dimes. Two fantastic throws. Oh, yeah. Leon Johnson, we could start with him. We called it out. You and I called it out. on. Not that it was like some great take. I said I think he's the best contested catch receiver on the team. Maybe one of the better ones Oklahoma State has had in recent history. It's one of the main things I've you know, really kind of called him out positively for. That catch. Bowman, I think you could say he underthrew that. He put that in the perfect spot because that's what you want to let your 7.5 monster athletic baseball, basketball, football playing freak athlete that's where you want to put the ball. Yeah, for him. let him moss somebody. It was such a good catch. Beautiful play. I thought Leon, I mean, he only had the two targets. He blocked well. I don't have a ton of notes on him. He did play a few snaps in the slot, obviously because of trips more than he did in any other game, I think, this season that he's played in. The one note I wanted to make, Kate, on him is – Robert Allen said on the radio yesterday that they're still trying to figure out a way to get him another year. Well, I think they have to figure it out until somebody tells them not to figure it out anymore. Like he, the, I'll say two things. One, I love that he finally got in the end zone. That was a great moment, and I'm sure that meant a lot to him. Oklahoma State's absolutely trying to see this through. And I wonder, you said Jaden Bray's going to get a lot of playing time. Part of me wonders if, you know, that they, they feel a little bit of um 
loyalty to a guy in Leon Johnson who just exhausted potentially his eligibility. So that's something I'm going to watch for. I'm sure they're going to mix Jaden Bray in, but is he going to get, you know, 85% of the snaps? We'll see. But for Leon Johnson, like, you know, he, his jump ball ability to your point is something that Oklahoma state has been missing for multiple years. And it's something that they want to get back to. Like he's kind of the guy I would think he would be a strong candidate for another year of eligibility. I think he would. Yeah, I, I know there's something. I, I don't want to speak too much on it because I don't remember specifically, but I believe he sat out a year of football during COVID when D3 like did their season in the spring or something. He ended up not playing. Yeah, I think and he that's just right. played baseball or something like that. So maybe they're going to factor that in, but. Something to, something to watch out for as we move forward. Kate, as we go on to Owens and talk about the one Jaden Bray play, Owens had some trouble against number 16, Brian George. Leon had some trouble against Houston's cornerback, Brian George. But man, they absolutely destroyed Isaiah Hamilton, number 23. <laughs> PFF has like over 100 yards on him alone, and I think two touchdowns, that it was a sad day for my guy. But, kid, we mentioned him on the preview pod as not looking very good in some of these games. And Mike Gundy even, he didn't throw 23 under the bus, but he said we didn't want to throw it at 16, who's the other corner. So he's basically saying we wanted to throw it at Hamilton. Honestly, started feeling bad for him as the I, game went on. I feel bad when these kids get put on a total island and they they just they're helpless and get picked on all game. Uh, Oklahoma State's been there though. You have so. a pick though. Yes, yes, true. That's great, great for him. Uh, great, lucky, you know that Alan Bowman considered throwing that ball. Um, so <laughs> we'll credit that one to Bowman. But no, it was a bad day for him, a hundred percent. I do think the one comment I had on Owens. He had some snaps in the slot as well out of trips. He had some nice catches. I thought he could have caught that fade ball early in the third quarter. It, not really early. I think there was like nine or ten minutes left. Oh, yeah, he got, totally. He got a little bit of separation from George, and Bowman put it to where he could jump and catch it. He jumped, and it went right through his hands. I, I actually counted it as a drop. I thought it was and a drop. I, I think PFF also has it as a drop because I have one PFF drop for him as well written down. I may have marked that incorrectly, but I counted it as a drop. It just, you know, he didn't have a bad game because he blocks so well, but he he could not get separation from George. Yeah, no, tough game. And that's probably where Jaden Bray, I would think, when he comes back and is healthy, that's probably where he slots in, maybe more so than, you know, Leon Johnson's spot. But it's going to be really interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a good take as well. You could kind of see him rotating at both yeah. spots because we know Bray's played both spots. Right. Uh, Bray, honestly, the note on him, that's how you run a fade route. And that's how... Bring the receiver inside. Give yourself space on the outside. Your quarterback throws a perfect ball to the corner. You've got so much room to just fade to the ball and to the pylon and make a beautiful catch. I think that's Jaden Bray's best attribute is his his fade ball catching ability. Like I, he's good after the catch. We haven't got to see enough of it, but through his career, I mean, he had catches in the Big Twelve title game two years ago. I mean, he is a he is a very good deep ball fade ball catcher, even when it's kind of behind his head. Like he's he adjusts oh, yeah. so well. 
what makes him dynamic too with that fade ball is the other route that he runs really well is the hitch curl, right. which is the option on that fade yeah. route. So yeah. you, the the defensive back has to be so nervous because it's like, man, if I get up and press him and the safety can't get over here, he might beat me deep. But if we're if I'm backed off too far, he can chop his feet quick quick enough to create separation and get back on the hitch. Yeah, that slant. He needs to figure out how to catch that slant, and yes. then they could run that more. Yes, we didn't talk. Uh, Blaine Green, we talked about him already not playing. Kale Cabanis, they put him in in 10 personnel, and he completely whiffed on the zone screen RPO yep. block for Presley. Yep. And they kind of went away from 10 personnel the rest of the game. <laughs> Sorry, Cabby. You ruined it. Yeah. I love Cabanis, but that was tough. Josiah John, man, I'm just going to talk about both these guys. Josiah Johnson's three catches for 21 yards. I thought. He did a great job. He actually got some yards after catch a couple of times. They're blocking both of these guys in this game on the GH counter was elite. Yeah. I didn't have them for any busted, like to where they caused the play to bust. And if you want to go back and tell me that they didn't block that safety coming down into the box late in the first half, I mean, what are they again? It's like in the UCF game. There's two guys there. Then they have yeah. to go sideways torpedo body, <laughs> and maybe that's something that Dicky and McIndoo need to teach. But it's not. It's not a normal technique. Sideways torpedo body is that the official you know terminology? Is that how they talk about? I mean, that? I think it's an acronym normally. Okay. It's okay. like a uh, S- okay, SDB. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Just toss that one out but of the locker room. They were they were so good that I don't have many notes on them. Yeah, they Josiah Johnson, man. Every week, I I feel like you turn the tape on, and if you're not paying attention, you could miss it. But if you're paying attention, that dude's playing his tail off. And I mean, he block he plays so hard. And again, I give Nick Martin the kind of you know credit for the screaming tackle, you know, kind of bit that we've been doing. But Josiah Johnson plays with a similar similar motor, in my opinion. He really does. It's a it's a great comparison by you. All right, you want to move on to our guy Al Pal? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Should Allie we print B, the shirts? <laughs> Twenty nine of forty three, three hundred forty eight yards, two TDs, one interception, sixty seven percent completion percentage. I had him with two turnover worthy plays. He had the one pick. Cade, before we even talk about it, we love talking about his post game pressers. We love talking about his jerseys. Let's just talk about the interception first. Yep. So we can move on from it. Adam once already broke it down. I heard Clint Shelf break it down yep. on the Pokes pod. You and I have already talked about it. That's the snag concept that they've run a million times against a million different coverages. The running back runs the arrow to the flat. Leon Johnson on this play is running the snag, which is kind of like a curl. It depends on what the coverage is, but in this instance, it was a curl. And the other receiver, who's either the tight end or they'll do it out of trip sometimes, is running a corner. So kind of taking you to the middle of the field a little bit and then back to the sideline. There was a cover two corner on that side who is pressed up on the receiver. So it could be man, but he's staring directly at Alan Bowman. Three yep. snap. <laughs> Post snap. He kind of looks at the receiver to get his hands on him. And then his head is directly back to Alan Bowman. Now, after the game, Bowman said, you know, that defensive end was blitzing and it just kind of rattled him a little bit. Even if the hot route 
is the arrow. So the hot route would be if there's a blitz, throw the hot route. Even if it's the arrow, you can throw it not you into can't the throw it to the cover two corner. Yeah, not into the squatting corner. No. Any other option would have been fine on that play. It's taking the sack because it was second and ten. Still got a down to go. Throwing the snag would have been open, but he may have gotten sacked before Leon Johnson was it. Like it might have hit Leon Johnson in the back. I, I ran that play very slow on YouTube. You know, how you can do like the baby skip. It looked like it may, if he anticipation throws, it might hit Leon in the back of the head. But he could have even thrown the corner and kind of thrown it out of bounds. I thought he should have rolled out and just thrown it out. Like that was the play to me. Fourth. That's a fourth option that you just brought up. Great option. That, I think Lunt said this already too, but that's that's the worst throw he's made all season. That's the dumbest play he's made all season. He he made, in my opinion, to even more simply, he made two mistakes. One was throwing it, and the second one was throwing it off his back foot. Like it's just like you're I don't even I don't know where the ball was lined up, but it I think it was by the time he had floated, he was on the far side, like and he threw it off his back foot. It was just like that was that was a brutal decision. It it, it like playing teams now in the future, if they're breaking them down on their podcast, I'm going to that play and going. I don't care how good Alan Bowman plays. He did this play, so he's just yeah. an okay quarterback. Yeah, lead with is, that. I don't think that, but I I mean, that's that's a terrible play. And it seemed like he knew it in the postgame presser, but normally he actually goes into a little bit more detail on his interception throws, and he didn't really go into that much yeah, detail that on that, that one. So I was still very confused. Because that one was horrific. I mean, I, that was that was unlike something Alan Bowman has done. Frankly, that was like a Spencer Sanders. Like that was a Spencer Sanders interception. That was like me in fourth grade flag football. Okay, Spencer Sanders freshman year. That, that is that better? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's we're kind of being funny with that because I thought he played an awesome game. Gundy actually said he wished he had some throws. There were some throws he wished he had back, but he made some good throws. I actually kind of disagree with Gundy there. I thought he made a lot of good throws in this game. He also said he still needs to work on setting and throwing. I thought he did a pretty good job of that in this game too. He sat in the pocket and went through his progressions on multiple throws that I have noted. So I I think this was one of his better games. If he doesn't throw that pick, it's probably his best game. And he... I thought he was extremely patient in this game. He had four throwaways, but I think all four were on true pressure straight off the snap where there wasn't a hot alert route that he could get it to. The only other throw that I think he would want back is the glance that you mentioned to Presley where he missed that. And I think that was on the next possession. So I think it was just a weird sequence for him, but I thought he played a great game. Like I wouldn't look at this and be like, man, Bowman was shaky. He was fine. Yeah, so his first throwaway, Kate, I wanted to note, there was that was a RPO, and the route was on the opposite side that he turned to. The receivers to the side he turned to both blocked. Oh, so that's why nice. he had to throw it away. So I went back and watched that play. I don't know who's who the issue was there. I, it might have just been true miscommunication, like everyone is confused, because I think it's Owens and Presley. They both block. Bowman turns that way and sees that and just rolls out and throws it straight away. So... <laughs> That was his first throw away. He missed BP on the glance that you just talked about. He missed Owens on the one go route 
outside of the one he caught, the one other one where he had separation, I think that Bowman missed him. He kind of threw it a little bit over his head. Mm-hmm. He also had so what I had the turnover worthy play was the throw to Ollie on the sideline after scrambling in the early second quarter. That DB that hit that DB in the hands. So I had to count that one. There was this one wasn't so much a bad throw, and there's not a good angle, so I didn't want to ca- I didn't want to knock him too much on it. But when they're in the red zone, they end up scoring, but they throw the glance RPO to Brennan. And Bowman kind of does like a karaoke to the right move and throws it. And I have no idea why he did that. I like didn't if he catch just that sets one. <laughs> and throws it. He hits BP before he runs. Because do you remember the one I'm talking about? So Brennan's like at the DB when Bowman throws it and like the DB just kind of bats it down because he's all oh, right, right. There. Okay. Yeah. So if he doesn't take that sidestep, there must have been a guy's hand in his face, but I couldn't see it from the TV angle. But if he just throws that, then the touchdown's on that play, most likely. Or Brennan's tackled at like the one-yard line. So that one, but that one wasn't really like a terrible throw. And then uh, the that we talked about that fast motion pick play where Brennan ran the in route off that fast motion. And then the throw to Brennan Presley that Malik Fleming knocked away. It was like a hitch route. And Fleming came and slapped it away in the middle of the fourth quarter. That's five throws that I thought weren't great out of his 42, 43. Three, so, yeah. I mean, there, I, I thought it was a really good game from him. And he had the drop from Owens. His adjusted completion percentage on PFF was 77%. So they obviously agree that he was really good. He was four of six on balls, 20 plus yards down the field. That's the most he's completed in a game all season. We talked about how much he was blitzed. We talked about under pressure 16% of the time. You talked about the five-man pressures. He also, Cade, we've knocked him on it previously. He clapped his hands so hard to get those illegal substitution penalties to get oh, Joe Mahalski sure. to snap it. Yeah. His hands are probably red after the game from Mahalski that. Mahalski almost blew it twice. <laughs> so you can tell he's learning and evolving even at his old age. If you don't have much else on Bowman, I do want to note, talked about Robert Allen talking about Leon Johnson, them trying to get a waiver. Robert Allen said that he's almost positive they're going to grant Allen Bowman an extra year of eligibility from what he's heard. He's the poster child for that seventh year. If Cam Rising, I honestly think Cam Rising getting that extra year was was the precedent for me to where there's no way Alan Bowman doesn't if Cam Rising did. I mean, Alan Bowman's everybody who follows college football knows his injury history. He he should get another year. Like that's what that rule is for. Yeah. So you can start the rumors because Robert Allen literally said that on the radio for everybody to hear or I mean all of his listeners. So I'm going to repeat it on here because he basically made it sound like he was like 99% sure. I mean, I don't know the official age you have to be to be a U.S. senator, but could Alan Bowman like <laughs> run for office and play quarterback at Oklahoma State? Dude, I, uh, kid, I don't even want to ask you this question because we've already gone so long in the offense, but I'm doing it. Okay. Do, do you want him back? Yeah. Yeah. Or, I guess I could make it even easier. I, I'm going to go with yes, too, but... Let's say for sure Zane needs another year. Would you rather go with Rangel or try to get another transfer portal guy or just stick with Bowman? 
I think you know what you have in Bowman. And I think that the transfer portal can go so many different directions on you. Like, let's say, let's say you acquire a Spencer Sanders in the transfer portal and a guy like that comes in and does not pan out, doesn't fit the system. I mean, you're in a tough spot next year, like really tough with a lot of returning talent. To me, Dustin, I think you have to, if he's willing to come back and the NCAA is going to allow it, I think you have to run the risk of somebody in your quarterback room transferring because you have stability with Alan Bowman. Like, you know what you have. You have a Big 12 championship competing. And in next year's conference, I mean, shoot, you could win the conference this year. But if Alan Bowman comes back, is Oklahoma State not right there with Utah to be the front runner in this conference next year? Oh, yeah. And Kate, all of those points I completely agree with. And my other thing is I I think that he's shown now after this game, after hitting multiple deep balls in a game and getting, and he's been blitzed by multiple teams this season, but he hasn't shown a true weakness. If you throw out the soaking wet, pouring rain, (laughs) watermelon, totally agree game. Totally agree. He, he can't, I'm not saying he's the guy that can win you the games, but if you just have a decent run game, then Alan Bowman can throw it around. And if they completely try to stop the run and add guys into the box, he's shown you that he's going to throw for 340-plus multiple times with multiple touchdowns and maybe an interception, but you're getting 350 yards and two touchdowns. I'll take that. Yeah, there's no part of me that wants to like you know bring in Joe Schmo from you know Western Illinois and see how that works. Like This is... Alan Bowman is a good transfer portal quarterback and has now like, you know, what if he comes back and, you know, makes a run at the conference again? Like he will, he will have, if he does that, he will have put himself in the conversation like that we had last year with Spencer Sanders for like, where is the top five? You know what I mean? Like, let's see what happens over the next couple of weeks, but I would absolutely take Alan Bowman back. And I was really trying, the reason I hesitated was because I was trying to think of how emphatically I wanted to say it. Yeah, no, I agree. The only thing that would maybe change my mind is if, you know, it's truly Zane Flores has made the jump and they're like, this guy's going to be so good that we need to get him in-game reps now. And he's going to have freshman mistakes, but if we can get him in-game reps now, he's going to be first team all Big 12 the next season. This is me like... I'm not, I don't know anything about Zane Flores. I haven't seen any of his development, have no insight into this, but like, do we feel like that's possible? Do we feel like next year Zane Flores is going to be like, that's just, that's just, I don't. Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a great chance of it being Zane Flores is so good. You could handle the young quarterback mistakes over what you know you have in Allen Bowman. If Brendan Presley's returning, Ollie Gordon's returning, Jaden Bray, Talon Shetron, it, not to mention if you get Leon Johnson for another year, Dejon Stribling. I'm telling you, the, all the offensive linemen can return if they want to. I, I think you go with Bowman. I had this conversation uh, with my brother actually that this is this is kind of an off schedule year. Like if you look at the roster. It's really next year that should be the conference championship run. They go in these kind of three-year spans where they start to build up, and this is usually the build-up year, but they're they're about to make a conference championship run early. So what happens next year? You bring all that talent back. I mean, I, 
I honestly think Dustin, if he comes back, you debt you absolutely run your chances of okay, who among Garrett Rangel, you know, Zane Floors, uh, M. Smith, who doesn't who doesn't want to stick around for that? And if they all do, great. That's a great thing to have. But that's that's unlikely to happen. But I, I think it's a risk you're willing to take. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, sorry to take us down that road. No, I it's think, a great time to have that conversation. I thought overall the offense played well against a really bad defense, and I'm ready to move to our defense. Before we do that, let's take a quick break and hear a word from one of our sponsors. We want to say a quick thank you to sponsor the Feels Like 45 podcast, Classic Overland. Classic Overland specializes in restoring original Land Rover Defenders designed with your unique style and specifications. They go to great lengths to find quality vintage Defenders before they begin the restoration process, and their team of experts will guide you through the various exterior and interior options to create the perfect build. Our friends Luke Reed and Robert Dennis of Classic Overland are both Oklahoma State graduates and will work with you through the process to ensure you have a great experience. And in addition, if you purchase a Classic Overland Defender and mention this podcast, the Feels Like 45 podcast, their team will donate a portion of the proceeds to the Pokes with a Purpose NIL Collective. To learn more, you can visit their website, classicoverland.com, and you can contact Luke and Robert at robert at classicoverland.com. Thank you. Go Pokes. Well, Dustin, let's talk about the good defense that played football on Saturday in Houston. Oklahoma State, again, it was a little bit of a tale of two halves. They they were having a tough time getting to the quarterback in the first half, made some a, a couple of adjustments that we'll get into and completely, you know, it was like, it was like installing a virus on a computer and watching it just melt down. Like that is what Oklahoma state's defense did to Houston for the latter part of that game. Yeah. And Kate, I think, you know, you're talking about making that change to the, the four man, even front more in the second half. And I also wanted to mention Oklahoma state again, plays a center who hadn't played many snaps. Demetrius Hunter has to play for Houston. Like he'd only played in like two other games so far this year. So you'd say they're lucking out, but against UCF, they he that guy played awesome. So I didn't want to call that out since we mentioned it last week. But what I was getting at with the point is, I think the plan in this game, as it is in every game, is stop the run without a light box, play man coverage on the outside, and in this game, Nardo made it a point to bring some five-plus man pressures. And he wanted to do that early because I think, you know, we rattled Smith last season at Texas Tech, and I think he thought he could do that again. But he's bringing extra guys and basically leaving it cover zero. And why is he doing that, Cade? In my opinion, it's because they have not been getting good pressure with the defensive ends. We've called these defensive ends out on it. As the game starts to go on, he's and they get beat deep a couple of times. And the defensive ends, well, I want to talk about first, obviously, when we get to them, they maybe play their best game all season and they're getting pressure with four and they're not needing to bring these extra guys. So it just took Nardo, I think, a little bit to realize that. But I don't fault him too much for I I do fault him for the putting the safeties on an island because we've seen that so many times this season. I think you could have maybe tried to do it with cover one and not blitz an extra guy, but Gundy even talked about it. Either you got to bring six 
or you got to try to get there with four and have a guy helping in the back. You can't bring five. And I, I think that was just a mistake in Nardo's game plan, but I think it was an honest mistake with how the defensive ends have played in most games this season. And I get what he was trying to do because when they got pressure in the second half, it ends up working out great. I think that it's probably close to the end of the the true like game plan where they go into it. Maybe they do it against BYU, but there's no way they do that against Texas. I wouldn't think because of it. It was like Donovan Smith had more time than any quarterback I've seen this year back there, and I I felt like John Rice Plumley was able to get a lot of time back there, but Donovan Smith in the first half. I mean, it was it was not good. And you're exactly right. We've talked about this. And frankly, you pointed this out as a potential problem before I really even thought about it. But Saturday, it was a problem. And, you know, credit to Brian Nardo being willing to throw that one in the trash at halftime or even, you know, a little bit before halftime, because Colin Oliver, you know, wreaked havoc on on Houston's offense offensive line. Yeah, Kate, if you look at the drive chart, it goes, there were Houston from after their touchdown with 10 minutes and 14 seconds left in the second quarter. They go punt, interception, punt, 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 punt. And they don't score again until seven minutes and 30 seconds left in the fourth quarter. And when you look at the final score and you see 30 points up there, Nine of those points were not given up by the defense. Right. They held Houston to under 400 yards, who's been, I know that I, I keep saying they're the worst team in the Big 12, but the one their one positive is their offense hasn't been that bad, and they do have some dynamic players. I know they're without Matthew Golden now, but Donovan Smith has actually you know done some things well this year. That drive chart is just disgusting. And then the one TV drive they have late – 41 yards of that drive came from scrambles with right osu dropping into zone yeah so I, that one i don't i know it made the game a six-point game but it's almost like man if they the defense it's not so much their fault as maybe that one's on the coaching staff for dropping the they hadn't coverages. given up one of those it feels like in years yeah and credit to donovan smith too i mean he's a good scrambler we talked about it on here he's a great runner he's a good scrambler his Scramble versus design run yards were like 50-50, I believe, in this game. And if you add back his sack yards, he he was the leading rusher without that. And if you add well, back his sack yards, I mean, well, they I, actually ran the ball. They actually ran the ball that got him at 4.6 yards a carry. So they're probably a little bit closer to five if you add those back in. But the thing is, they they just they didn't do it consistently. If you go back and watch this game, the Oklahoma State defense, after those, besides those explosives early, they pretty much dominated this game. It was a dominant performance. And I'm sure people, it, Kate, if you're going to agree with that take, I'm sure people listening are going to disagree. No, with I agree. Nice take on that. But I thought it was a dominant performance by the defense in this game, aside from the same problem we've seen through a lot of this season explosives when they get caught in cover zero with no deep safety or when their safeties get put on an island. I think for me, it was the game where they dominated the largest stretch. It was, they dominated the largest stretch of any game they've played in. And it felt at times like Jim Knowles-esque, like the the way that Donovan Smith had no shot back there. The other thing I'll say is a little bit of a joke, but like 
I don't know if you heard this on the on the pregame or on the uh, you know on the call. Uh, first series guy compares him to Vince Young and th- just throws it out there. Says he's got a little Vince Young to him. I'm like, man, that's a comparison I wouldn't have tried to make. And <laughs> he had a long touchdown throw, and up until the scramble, it was nothing like it. And I kind of felt bad. I was like, man, it's hard to fill a lot of air like that. But I'm sure that announcer was very thankful for the scramble touchdown run because that was as bad a comp as I've ever seen. He's He's got a decent arm, and he's fast enough to make a play with his legs. He has zero Vince yeah. Young to him. He honestly, I actually thought – uh, he made good throws on those explosives, but I thought he made some really bad throws in this I game. I don't think he has I know a the, very accurate or that big of an arm. Throw to Rucker. I mean, great play by Rucker, but I, I still am not 100%. If Rucker's not there, that ball's not even getting close to that receiver. I, I think he thought it was his receiver. I really do. Like, because it was, he threw it to an underneath route that wasn't there. That ball's landing eight yards short of that receiver. That's why I think he, he thought he had there. a cutting in receiver. <laughs> I know the pick at the end of the game. He's just trying to make a play late. I'm not going to kill him for that. But there was an RPO route where he threw it first off a thousand miles an hour and threw it so far over. I think it was Karn's head that he could, <laughs> he couldn't even get a hand on it. And it was so fast. He didn't even have time to react to it. I, I thought he was pretty inaccurate. I've actually seen some people kind of, praising him from you know the Oklahoma State side that that like he was better than they thought I still thought he wasn't very good 59% completion percentage that wide open post throw is like you would want you know Zane Flores to hit that throw in game action yeah that's high school huddle tape 100% 100%. highlight so they've got to stop putting Trey Rucker in that scenario though they have to yeah the thing is when Nardo talks after these games, he's like, yeah, we had to make an adjustment to them in empty when they were going to empty in the first half. And every team does that to them in empty in the first half. I would just stop adjusting that way. Like just (laughs) go zone, go three high and don't let anybody behind you. Dana literally said in his post game presser, we lined Jonah Wilson up into the boundary because we knew he'd be open. If, if Oklahoma state got into that formation, he, I mean, he literally I, said, we saw that in film this week. I would love to let Donovan Smith throw 60 times and let him pick you apart underneath if you just stop doing that. <laughs> Dana also said on the trick play, he's like, that's the first trick play I think I've ever ever orchestrated successfully, or my team has. And he said he saw that on film. And when you talk, when you hear Nardo, he ran our game, play. they're in man. Yes, they did. They're in man pressure right there. So nobody has the quarterback. You're in blitz cover zero. Yeah. That's why no one was on the quarterback because you're trying just, to attack one. <laughs> it's I think it's okay for you to say your secondary is not good enough in most scenarios to cover that way. Like they just have not been all year. And I get that you have to do it sometimes, but maybe there's a scenario where you don't have to. And you just get a little more conservative. I I would be okay with that because it it routinely puts Oklahoma State and their offense in a tougher spot. And the thing is, Cade, you're gonna hear you know Oklahoma State made a, a bunch of adjustments on defense. They honestly were switching between man and zone in the first half more than they have in some games recently. We you know we've called them out for playing too much man. I think they were switching. I think the way they were playing man against this team though 
and Brian Nardo alluded to it after the game, which we've hit on. They just needed to make an adjustment to keep a safety back there. Or if they're bringing pressure, they've got to bring it in a different way. I don't really think they made that many adjustments. They did what you said. They were able, they kind of went to more four down, but that's almost the same adjustment. A little just bit. Defending empty differently. So you could say it was two. It's technically like one extended adjustment. <laughs> and Nardo laughed about it after the game. He goes, you guys keep talking about adjustments. He goes, we only made like one adjustment in the second yeah, half. He was like, that was just a dumb move by me in the first half. I mean, he called himself out on it. And you hear like, oh man, Oklahoma State's defense every second half is making all these adjustments. In some games, it's true. In this game, I think it was just one because I thought that they played pretty good in the first half besides the explosives. I know I've already said that, but I kind of want to keep hammering that point home. Yeah, I, I would agree. If you go back and watch it, they were pretty good down to down. Yeah, and they weren't letting Houston get a lot of consistency you know and guys were settling in you know they probably they made a couple of other adjustments i'm kind of being a little sarcastic there but it wasn't like they just completely changed what they were doing in this game and that was awesome that they were able to get to the four down stuff like you said oliver was awesome they didn't blitz a ton in the second half they were doing kind of more of that four man and they were doing some stuff we've talked about in the past with jim Knowles defenses some of those simulated pressures creepers or we we call it green dogs. Nardo apparently calls it snipers. Whenever huh. the linebacker delay blitz, we saw Nick Martin get a sack on the snipers. That uh, you know the general term. If you read an X's and O's book, they normally call that green dogs. But it's basically the delayed blitz from the linebacker when he's the guy he's covering isn't going out on a route. They're in max protect, or if he's in zone and you know no one's kind of coming up on his zone and he's like that clock goes off in his head. But I did say, think what Houston was doing in this game was a little interesting compared to what some of the other teams have been doing. And I wanted to see if you noticed this, there were multiple occasions where they were sending all vertical routes and then had a shallow crosser kind of cutting in front of Nick Martin or Xavier Benson's face. Obviously in the second half, Colin Oliver was rushing a lot, but they were kind of trying to attack Oklahoma state underneath in the middle where the linebackers are. And I haven't really seen a team do that like it was almost like they were exploiting the spy because martin's kind of waiting there to do that snipers it's like they were trying to trick like if he follows the receiver then smith is going to scramble but i thought mark he got caught a couple times benson got caught i think once but outside of that i thought they did a great job of like defending that play i think it's just the nature of like kansas runs more like option stuff you've got a quarterback in smith that's going to improvise and and they're going to scheme up the offense to try to let him run i thought that they did a great job i mean if you take away the explosive run they they did a really good job of bottling that up for the most part and they had houston had no plays of 10 or no drives of 10 plus plays oklahoma state had I believe it was four of those so they held them, like, like I'm saying, they never let Houston really get in a rhythm. Now, some of that is attributed to an explosive play, scoring right. a touchdown, but they didn't score that many points on their offense. So a lot of that is attributed to Oklahoma State not letting them get into a, a rhythm. And not to mention, Oklahoma State's defense had to fight back from a roughing the, pa- roughing the punter penalty and still was able to hold Houston scoreless. Yeah, they went That's three and out right after that. Yeah, so I thought that was awesome. Like I said, there was a mix of man and zone early. They did some of that cover three, cloud cover three, cover six look where one corner is kind of in cover two. The other one almost looks like he's in man dropping deep with a deep route. 
I thought there was a, you know, there was a mix in the first half of odd and even, but they definitely went heavy, even front in the second half. I will say, Cade, you know, we kind of criticized Nardo for that game plan early. If you watch, though, in some of these games, Oklahoma State gets killed when teams spread them out and run those counter plays into the boundary away from Xavier Benson's, Benson's side or even to his side sometimes because Oklahoma State has such a light box that Benson's all the way out in the overhang. Colin Oliver is normally spread a little bit because I'm talking about when they're spreading you out in like basically like 11P with three receivers kind of split wide and they'll run counter and it's just Nick Martin taking on both polars. So I do get why he doesn't want to just completely abandon having a safety down in the box it just sucks because if he does that, there's a chance somebody can get beat deep. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I will be curious to see how they handle it going forward. Uh, PFF snap count wise, Epps got the start and played more than double the snaps of Dylan Smith after we'd seen Smith play quite a few snaps recently and even get the start in the UCF game. And then Colin Clay, not very many snaps. Again, I will say that only fifty-eight total plays for Houston. So. Not very many, but Kate, if you're ready, I'm ready to get into the position. Yeah, let's groups. go ahead. Out of the defensive line, I thought this might have been one of their best yep. games on the defensive ends. I thought Goodlow was solid. He had a bit. He had a big. Uh, well, it wasn't a big play, but he saved a big play on a chase down tackle early in the second quarter. Walter Scheid, I saw he got the award for best defensive lineman of the game. And Cade, I've got to give him his flowers because I've been pretty pretty critical of him this season. He had a good pressure and got his hand up on the first drive on the fourth and three with 523 left in the second quarter. There was a third and seven great tackle on Smith. He destroyed the center, Hunter, the new center I was talking about. First play of the second half, I thought he maybe got washed a little bit, but that was really one of the only times I saw him like really get kind of dominated. Outside of that, I think this was Cody Walter, maybe one of the better games of his career. I thought the ends were pretty good in in run, you know, fits. I thought that that was, it was really just pass rush that I noticed them struggling. But other than that, they were they were great. Yeah, Latu again was solid. That's like three games in a row now after not being very good earlier in the season. My friends that were at the game, shout out to former podcast sponsor Andrew Cox, who they showed on TV twice oh i didn't notice i noticed yeah so i'll I'll send you a video of it after but he pointed out xavier ross we've talked about it on here about how energized he is on the sideline so i just got to shout out xavier ross he's not always making a bunch of plays on the field but it sounds like he's the raw rock guy on the sideline for not uh cox said that he was getting in the offensive lines face and like hyping them up on the i've noticed it uh i think it may have been before bedlam that he's one of the louder guys I love that. Uh, I thought Brown played pretty good. And then Jaleel Johnson had a nice tackle. He popped a little bit and not very many snaps. So I thought the ends were good overall. If you don't have any more notes, nose tackle-wise, I thought Kirkland, again, was getting some good penetration. This was one of those games where he was like a little bit short of making a couple of plays. Yeah, Yeah, a little bit too slow. But I thought thought he did a good job. That's the kind of the thing. The defensive ends and the nose tackles, what they did well in this game, I thought you you mentioned it already in the run. They ate up the offensive linemen. Now, Houston's offensive line isn't great, but they're big guys, and they ate those blocks up, and they let Martin and Oliver and Benson make some plays, which was big time. Clay had the tackle for loss. Kelly got in for some snaps. 
I thought as a whole, the defensive line was pretty solid in this game. Just the fact that they never let Houston get into a rhythm on the ground. Yeah, you mentioned Houston's offensive line. Not great, but they've had more success running than they did against Oklahoma State on Saturday. 100%. Moving to the linebackers, Nick Martin. 12 tackles, 11 solo. One sack, three tackles for loss. PFF has him with two hurries. We talked about the sniper. Do you want some examples? The third and 18 with a little under a minute left in the second quarter. The uh, sack, second and seven, 456 in the third quarter. I thought he was decent dropping in his own coverage. They completed a 16-yarder on him late in the first quarter, but I thought he was pretty good other than that. he All of uh, Jenkins' 10-plus-yard runs came on a missed tackle at the line of scrimmage. I don't know if you noticed that. I did not. A missed tackle on the 16-yard run from Martin. He's in the hole and just misses him. It was like he completely whiffed, and that was the longest run of the day. It could have been stopped for a one-yard gain. But that's what I'm saying. Like the three 10 plus yard runs from the running backs all could have been stopped short. They were missed tackles. So it wasn't like it was like a truly bad defense on those plays. If you make those tackles, they had like zero rushing yards from the running back, <laughs> like 25 rushing yards. <laughs> I know it's what ifs, but it's kind of how it wanna... works. But not for Oklahoma State, they were in good position. It wasn't like there were massive holes opening up right. every time on these plays. Um, I thought that he was just, I, I have so many plays. I'm not going to read off all these plays, but so many from Martin. One scream tackle too. I mean, that's an official yes. stat in my stat book because there, I think it was one a Donovan Smith scramble where he came flying in and blew the whole thing up. And it was just outstanding. I actually had somebody tag me and say, I think that was a Nick Martin scream tackle. So <laughs> He almost got him a couple of times. Smith actually did a pretty good job avoiding Martin a few times with, you know, he's a pretty dynamic runner. So uh, Colin Oliver, not a ton of stats in this game, but they, I think it's because they used him as a pass rusher so much. So he had four tackles, one sack, two tackles for loss. I mean, that's still a really good game. Two PFF hurries. I thought he was good in the linebacker spot as well. Like, the one of the I think it might have been the first Houston play of the game. Carnes came in motion to try to kind of split zone, kick out, block him, and he threw him off and made the tackle on the zone read. It was just a incredible play. He still can get washed on those counters with those pulling linemen, but you know that's just kind of what happens in yeah. this three down defense. That's why teams run counter against Iowa State in the past. It's you know, there's things you can do. Like, obviously, he can try to avoid that block. That you can attack the puller from the end spot. But I do think that happened a few times. But he, he brought, he almost had like four sacks in this game. Yeah. Xavier Benson. I thought overall he was good. He just didn't pop as much. It looked like Houston was trying to kind of spread him out and get him out of the I box the as much thing. as possible. Yeah. Like they were really not trying to let him get in there and make plays. But I thought one interesting thing with them, they were activating him as a pass rusher. They did it game. a lot early. Yeah. Yes. And I, it was something new. It was a cool wrinkle. It just seemed like they, it didn't work very well when they did it. 
I think I think you have to make Colin Oliver that guy. One, I think Benson's better in coverage. And two, I think Oliver's the better pass rusher. So I I appreciate that they're trying to activate multiple defenders from different angles and keep the offensive line guessing. You can't just say circle 30. You know what I mean? But at the right. end of the day, like that's what those two guys are better at. I agree. I, I will say the swing pass to Jenkins, the running back, that huge play. Benson, Rucker, and Dylan Smith all ran downfield with Stephon Johnson. That's why that that happened. Oh, they they literally they showed the aerial view on the replay. They all three run with him. Yeah, so that's why there was that huge swing. Didn't want to let him catch the ball. I appreciate that. They were not going to is let that Stephon cloud Johnson coverage. Is that what that is? <laughs> yes, that's full. That's triple cloud. Yeah, but. All right, I, I mean, man, the, I thought the linebackers were pretty good, so I don't have a ton of notes on them. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just general take. Nick Martin, if he's not Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, I don't, I don't know what it takes to win that award. Like, I mean, he's going to be, you know, Big 12's leading tackler, middle linebacker on a more than likely Big 12 championship appearing team. Like, he should win that award. Yeah, I agree. Bunch of sacks, bunch of tackles for loss. Six sacks on the year. Coverage. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely awesome. Incredible. Defensive, right? back, defensive backs wise. So one note, again, Robert Allen was given a bunch of info on the radio the other day. Kenneth Harris is red shirting. So oh. I guess they decided that earlier in the season. So he'll be it's back next year. So I, I like that. Obviously, he probably needed a little bit more, not time to develop because he's an older guy from Arkansas State, but I like the fact that they felt good using the red shirt year on him. I like that. I just want to start Kate in general with the corners because they didn't really get attacked very much. This is kind of back to a classic Oklahoma state game where they're attacking the safeties mainly when he's passing, but Cam Smith, I thought he, you know, he had three tackles. He had the interception late, which was awesome. He had the one pass breakup. He had good coverage on the uh, fourth and three on the first drive. I thought he had a pretty solid game. I thought that Corey black, the only, th- I only had them throwing at him one time. They tried to hit man Jack downfield uh, with 13 50 left in the third quarter. Corey was all over him incomplete pass. I didn't have many notes on McKinney. Kale Smith man. Jack won a contested catch over him with nine forty left in the game. That was on that drive with all the scrambles that they scored on. But outside of that, I, I don't even think here's my there take. Were many throws at those guys like at all. It felt like they Oklahoma State was like they out athleted Houston on the perimeter in this game. Like I know that they've got some good players, but like Stephon Johnson, you know, zero catches, zero targets. I mean, it, even guys in uh, Golden, I believe, or uh, no, Brown, Samuel Brown, who. I kind of had circled as like, you know, he's, he's going to get a lot of action had hardly any. So, and it's interesting when you start thinking about this, like the games that Oklahoma state has won and played really well defensively, they have busted and the games that they've lost, like they've been attacked on the corners successfully. So is it like, you just willing to give that up because over time, like you're probably going to still win if you bust once or twice. I honestly don't know, and it's it's a great point to bring up because I don't think BYU's receiving core is very good. 
And it's it's one of the reasons I think Oklahoma State's defense is going to have success in this game, no matter who plays quarterback for BYU. Not to get to that preview early, but it's a great point by you, and I want to come back to it when we do that yeah. preview because I don't think they'll be it. Uh, UCF, I, I we talked about it in their preview. I think they had one of the better, if not the best, receiving cores in the Big 12, and they tried to do exactly what you just said. Exactly. I just think if you don't have pretty good to great receivers, Oklahoma State's corners are good enough to cover them up for yeah. the entirety of the game. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Let's get let's talk about point. that against BYU when we preview yes. All right, Dylan Smith, they had the scramble drill completion on him. That's not his fault. I clocked it at 5.46 seconds before Donovan Smith threw it. And then I think he had good coverage uh, second and eight late in the third quarter on the mesh crosser, crosser. Cam Epps, I thought he was pretty good in this game. He had the defensive pass interference early in the game. They found the zone hole on him on, I think, the very next play. And that was like the two bad plays he had on the game because he had, or, I was like the three, he popped three plays in a row. Defensive pass interference, they found the zone hole on him. And then he had great coverage on the slot the next yep. play. And then yep. you never really saw him again. He made a couple good tackles, but um, outside of him, Trey Rucker, the interception was awesome. He talked about it. He said he had the number two on the seam and hit him and then just looked to the flat and saw that Smith was about to throw it out there. So he hopped over there and picked it off. It wasn't, I really was so happy for him. It's been a, yeah. it's been an up and down year for him. And so to be hit in the belly with one is like, it, it felt like a gift from the football guides in a way. 10 tackles in this game. He was all over the place. And I think that was because Houston was going to some of these shallow crossers and stuff because he's normally the guy helping on those, especially when they're crossing from the field into the boundary where he's playing the man, the, the touchdown and man coverage. I mean, that's just, he's just not that guy, pal. He's not, he's not the turn and run with Jonah Wilson. Who's like four, three out of high school track speed. I, I, I don't know what, I want him I to turn like the right way. To like, I mean, it's so unconventional, but like, just put Cam Epps there. Like, <laughs> if you are if you are lined up and you notice that you are the safety to the trip side, you're not the safety to the trip side anymore. You switch. Cam's just got to run over there. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying completely. Like, it's a needs, joke, but like seriously, like teams are keying on it. He needs cover one safety help, and I'm sure people are listening to this are like, well, don't play him. But he's he's, so he's just good not the cover. turn and run yeah. guy. He just needs some help, and because he's so good against the run, he's good in coverage underneath. It's not that he's not fast. He's just not the flip your hips. I was gonna guy. say hips. It's the hips. Yeah, he's not very fluid. He's kind of mechanical. It's why he didn't probably take that pick to the house. Yeah, he's just not a great a, point. But uh, Gundy mentioned on his radio show for some reason. I don't even know why. It was like out of nowhere. He goes, "You know, Rucker's coming back next year." So. <laughs> That's we'll great. see Rucker again. That's like his ninth year of eligibility, I think. But I love it. I, I know you got to kill him for that TD, but he had a lot of good plays in the game. Kendall Daniels, he had kind of an old-school Xavier Benson game, I thought. He had one big missed tackle, second and five with 330 left in the second quarter. But that's the drive that ended in the Rucker pick, so it wasn't bad. But he, you know, he had a good play on the third down pass after the roughing the kicker. He was covering up some RPO stuff early where they Smith ended up handing it off because Daniels was in that hole. He just didn't really 
do a ton four tackles i i didn't think he i didn't think it was a terrible game though I by him the, at all i thought he was solid i love the comp to like old school xavier benson he has been like that for a lot of this year like just kind of an enigma like he makes some good plays and then it's like man what was that so yeah i i think that's it you know mckinney got in i didn't have any major notes on him really i thought the defense was great and you can disagree with me if you want because they've had you know what I think Houston had eight passing plays of 15 or more yards and six rushes of 10 or more yards. Although like three of those came from the scrambles on those, on that final drive. I thought it was a good game from the defense against what I think, even though this, I think this Houston team is really bad. I think it's a decent offense. So I thought it was one of the better Oklahoma state defensive games. I think this season, honestly. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it was, I, I did make the comment that you could win a Big 12 championship with the way the defense played in the second half. Like that was yeah. that was good enough to win you a championship. So it wasn't amazing, but it wasn't it wasn't terrible. No, it, it was but it was as bad really as good. It was really good in this conference. So it was exactly what aside from the Rucker TD, probably. That's the it was exactly what we the, everything we're saying, we know we're saying it with that in mind. Yeah, take out the Rucker TD, and that's the three-three-five Brian Nardo defense right yep. there. Yep. It was the yep. Ben don't break, except they broke on the Rucker TD. Yeah, so. asterisk. Yep. Uh, I will say, Cade, special teams wise, we have to shout out a couple things here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna die from a special teams penalty. I'm I mean, literally gonna die. I it's it is as simple as it, you you grab somebody by the face mask and say. Do not get near the punter. And they always do that at the worst possible time. Yeah. And, and Kale Smith, I know it wasn't a, like egregious, I guess, but Kale Smith had the block in the back yeah. on the punt return. I actually thought that was too. a pretty soft. Block. Yeah, like there it are, was. It was kind of behind the play, like, but there was another one that would have been flagged anyway. So Yeah, Benson, I think, yeah. also did it. <laughs> yeah, who did not get flagged, and his was maybe more impactful. Yes, but man, you just can't have these penalties. I love Parker Robertson's effort. I love Parker Robertson. Gundy even said that was not punt block. I, that's what he, I know. He went rogue. <laughs> well, you can't go rogue and then hit the punter. Yes, I, I do. Alex Hale, I thought that the way he adjusted kicking, he kicked his first field goal low and that PAT that got blocked was low. Yeah. And then he comes back and makes the other two field goals and kicks them high and through the uprights. So he obviously either someone said something to him or he noted, I mean, obviously he noticed he got one blocked, but I thought that was a great adjustment from a kicker. And that's probably the first time I've ever said that. Yeah. I, you have to wonder if that was on purpose or if that's yeah. just like some, sometimes you get to the tee box and you hit a couple thin and you're like, wait a second, what was that? <laughs> or, I mean, maybe not. Cause I'd probably hit them all thin, but next session, Good, two good kickoff tackles. One of them assisted by Ty Williams. Quentin Stewart had a pancake on on kick return. I just anytime I see a pancake, I'm gonna I'm gonna write it down. And then uh, I thought Hudson Cock had some good punts. So. He did. He really did. I thought special teams was great. Alex Hale reminds us why he is who he is, and he is that guy. I mean, those big kicks on the road. Yeah, Cade. Uh, that's all I've got. Dustin, fantastic breakdown. I mean, I can't believe. We're to this point in the season. It kind of dawned on me that we've got one regular season game 
and you need something to go right or else this is the end of your, you know, your, your regular season. It's been wild. It was an interesting week for BYU last week, a 24 point underdog on their home field. And they gave Oklahoma everything they wanted and more. I mean, they were a pick six at the goal line from probably winning that game. And so now they come to Stillwater and, you know, the biggest question mark, and it makes them difficult to preview, which is probably why this will, will seem a little bit quicker is we don't know who's going to play quarterback. And it seems like they don't know either. I mean, they, they may have found something with Retzloff, but you know, you got Keaton Slovis, the USC transfer, you know, sitting back there. It, this has been a strange year for them. And, and I think a growing up year for them getting into the big 12. Yeah. Okay. That's the problem with this preview. We, because of what we saw in the OU game, if you go to any OU breakdown or if you watch that game, you will you will notice this exact same thing if you've watched BYU play in any game with Slovis. When Slovis plays, he is a pocket passer, and they're a wide zone, think like Baylor offense, yep. basically yep. with Shapin. Great call. When Retzloff plays, they ran so I watched I've watched three BYU games now and this was one of them if when they played with Retzloff they were running running plays that they had not run in any other game they were they went speed option they were doing a midline like a b gap zone read <laughs> it was not anything I'd seen again I've not watched every BYU game but the offense operated completely differently I would think of Retzloff more like a He's kind of more like your Garrett Green, more like that type of running quarterback, which Oklahoma State has seen a few of those guys this year. Donovan Smith isn't the same kind of guy, but he's a runner. I honestly think it bodes better for them with the running quarterback than it does. And I know UCF had a running quarterback, but I think it bodes better for them with the running quarterback than seeing a true pocket passer in Slovis, who they haven't really seen much at all this season. I'll give you, I'll give you the other point of view. If you're going to get Quinn Ewers in two weeks, would it be a good idea to get Keaton Slovis? Yes, probably would. Like to see that because you're exactly right. They have not seen that. So it's kind of hard to preview. We'll talk a little bit about both, but like Kate said, we we're probably going to keep the offense short, and then when we get to the defense. I'll talk about that as well. We honestly might have to keep that short because they used almost a completely different scheme against OU. But let's get through <laughs> the offense. Kalani Sataki, Cade, quick note on their head coach, Benny Tonga's cousin. So oh, he wow. talked about that in his presser. So the offense, a op complete opposite of UCF, who Gundy called out for being really good on third down. BYU is like really, really, really bad on third down, although they were like three and three on fourth down against OU. So that's something to note, but they were five of 14 in that game. I think they've been converting at like a 25, 27% rate all season, as opposed to UCF, who was like 50%, 89th in passing offense, 117th in rushing offense, 118th in yards per play, 113th in points per drive, 48th in sacks allowed, 50th in turnover margin and the F plus, which combines the FEI ratings with Bill Conley's S&P plus ratings, they're 88th. So it's almost like their offense defense combined ranking is 88th. It should, they just have not been very good on offense, Cade. And I mean, it's scheme wise, their offensive coordinator, Andy Roderick, what I've talked about, you know, it's an attacking multiple formation offense. They run a few plays out of a lot of formations, a lot of misdirection. Think, you know, Oklahoma State does that as well. 
With Slovis, it's the wide zone scheme. It can create, you know, that creates difficult run fits for the defense, but Oklahoma State runs that wide mid zone, so they practice against it a lot. The one positive it has for the offense is it kind of limits the potential for negative plays because it gives that running back, if you've got a good patient running back, time to find the hole. So they want to press the defense wide, allow the back to cut up field and get vertical. The back's going to aim at the tight end or where the tight end would be and kind of read the linemen's on that cut. Outside of that, the scheme kind of has some influences from, you know, some air raid stuff, some Gus Malzahn stuff. But then against OU, I saw that double tight end counter, speed option, different ways to run zone read. And in the passing game, it's a lot of air raid short stuff, and they did a ton of it against OU. The mesh rail, mesh type concepts, Y cross, a lot of wide receiver screens or quick throws to the back in the flat. They run the snag concept, which we talk about a lot with Oklahoma State. They do, they will throw in some double moves and try to take a deep shot and do, and they also like that RPO, like quick hitch stuff. But I just don't, I don't know who they're going to use at quarterback. So I don't know exactly what they're going to do on offense. Well, and that's, that's why I think the, the preview, like what you just laid out there, you, you gave us two apples to pick from, and we'll see which one we get on Saturday because I don't know which one I would prefer to see. I mean, the stats you laid out there are profound. Like I honestly, the this fact offense that this is bad. The fact that they're 49th in sacks given up is actually shocking to me because you would think with numbers like that, that they can't protect the quarterback, but that doesn't seem to be like the general case. And when you watch them, they're just not very efficient. They, they kind of, they, they don't get guys deep down the field. They don't generate a lot of yards per play, obviously with the, with the stat you just laid out there, but it's very obvious when you watch them that they, they, they labor on the offensive side of the ball. Their offensive line played good against OU, but I do not think they're very good. They've had a lot of shifting around. They've had guys banged up like Paul uh, Mayale. He's been banged up. Waylon uh, Lapohu is good, not great. Connor Pay, their center, good, not great. Caleb Etienne, former Oklahoma State, he started for a little bit at tackle. They played him at guard some. He doesn't really play very much anymore. It's been it's been a tough go for them. They haven't, to your point, they haven't been terrible in pass pro, but they have not been great in run blocking. And then running back wise, LJ Martin's been banged up some. So Aiden Robbins has been playing. You know, it's like they've Aiden Robbins had 182 yards against OU, but LJ Martin still has more yards than him on the season, if that tells you anything. And then they mix in Deion Smith, Miles Davis a little bit. The receivers who, you know, Darius Laster has been banged up. I like him. I like Chase Roberts, but they've lost a couple other guys. They've got Keanu Hill. They're just not, they're tight end Isaac Rex. They'll use some of their fullbacks like uh, Fakahua and Ray Paolo, but they're just not, there's not anybody on their offense that truly, truly scares me. Like guys who we talked about for UCF and even on Houston. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The The playmakers are not plentiful. And I actually thought that what, what they were able to do against Oklahoma was like inspiring. It was almost like a Rudy story because I was stunned with how much they were able to generate, which wasn't a ton, but it was enough to keep that game close. They surprised them big time yeah, for sure. Uh, Retzloff, I don't want to trash him too much because we've had some issues with trashing quarterbacks earlier in the season, but 
He's hit on like one ball, 20 plus yards down the field all season. And he, I just don't, I don't think he's a great downfield thrower. If they play him and I hope, you know, knock on wood, but I'm talking about their receivers, maybe not being able to get separation from our corners. And if he's not a great deep ball thrower, it takes out as much scare as the safety is getting caught one-on-one, even though I think like you mentioned in the review of the UH game that Nardo is going to probably not do that again. But even if he does, I don't even know if BYU hits on a ton of those, not because yeah, just the timing and everything. If they're playing Retzoff now, if they're playing Slovis, things change a bit, but if I think Retzoff's going to play and I just don't, I don't know how they consistently beat Oklahoma state up on defense, unless the game is snowy and cold and turns into craziness. Yeah, that's what that's what it is for. I think the it's getting creased in the run game. That worries me the most is that they find success on the ground with some of these wide zones. Oklahoma State, for whatever reason, you know, doesn't play them the way they have all season. That's the way BYU will have success offensively. I don't think it's going to be pushing the ball vertically, and I don't think they're going to have a lot of success trying to do that. So I... I I see it being a pretty long day for them. Yeah. On defense, it's it doesn't really get any better. 76th in passing defense, 110th in rushing defense, and then they don't create havoc. Cade, we talked about that with UCF. Even though I know UCF won 45 to 3, but they didn't they had a bad defense rushing and they also didn't create havoc. They're 117th in tackles for loss and they are dead last in the nation, 130th in sacks. Wow. 49th in defensive yards per play, 71st in defensive points per drive. Their F plus on defense is 76. And sorry, I misspoke earlier. That that 88th was just the offense F plus. This is just the defense. What I was talking about with them is they're like a 425 kind of multiple front. We'll put six guys up there. We'll put three guys up there. We'll put four guys up there. We'll move guys all around. They've got their flash linebacker. They've got their Mac linebacker they have that flash one they also that's their sam too but they call him flash they've got their open end defensive end so they have some cool names i wanted to mention those to you kate and then they have their rover but their rover is more like their wheat side linebacker but what happened against ou is that three down i talked about that they go to situationally they played it almost the entire game and they actually started different players than they have started in other games And it wasn't because those guys were hurt because those guys ended up rotating in. They completely went with the surprise attack like UH did to Texas when they went to that 3-3 that we talked about in that preview. They went three-man. They had two linebackers that were either three to four yards off the line of scrimmage or up tight, kind of in the gaps between the defensive linemen. And that was uh, AJ... I'm not even going to try to say his last name. I didn't hear them pronounce it on the broadcast. And then uh, Max Tooley. And then they had... Chaz, all you like five yards off the line of scrimmage in the middle as the other linebacker. And then they had everybody else with a defense, defensive back and the three down linemen. I'd seen them do it. I can't remember what one of the other games they had gone to it a couple times, but I'm telling you, like they were in this 90% of the game. It was yeah. wild. It, it Gundy mentioned it on his radio show. I don't know if they're going to go to that or go back. I think they'll try to mix it up some against Oklahoma State because that's what other teams have been doing. But they were in kind of different coverages. It was 
it was quite a bit different than what I'd seen from BYU's defense in other games. Yeah, I just feel like this is one of those games where what you've done is what, you know, it's it's dance with the one that brung you. And I think that this is, you know, stick to your your bread and butter. It's feed Ollie. It's it's get your guys separation, run that snag, you know, hitch stuff, RPO and and get out with the win. I that's the way I see it. I don't know what BYU is going to be able to do, especially with, you know, some of those havoc numbers, the sacks they give up. I, I don't know what they're going to be able to do defensively that keeps Oklahoma state off schedule enough. This is going to be, if Oklahoma state takes care of the ball, plays a clean game, they should be in a pretty good spot. Yeah. And they don't, you know, they'll let their corners get physical. Sometimes again, they, they may do something completely different against Oklahoma state. Now that we've seen what they did against OU, but they don't want to get burned. It's almost like a four, two, five, then don't break. And they keep those guys up front. They'll do some cover three, some cover two, they will get aggressive and go to man sometimes, but it's, you know, against OU, they were kind of dropping back into coverage a little bit. So very confused. You know, some of the guys, I like Tyler Batty, their uh, strong side end. He's a, he's a really good player. They've got a guy, John Nelson, that defensive tackle who's been banged up. I don't know if he's going to play, but he's another one of their good players. Isaiah Banya was their open end, their boundary end. He didn't start in the three down. So I don't know if he's going to play or not at linebacker. We talked about some of the guys there defensive backs. I like Ethan Slade. I like crew Wakely, their safeties, their corners played, you know, decent against OU Garrett Robertson and Heckard, but I I don't think they've been great. And, you know, they'll, they'll rotate all three of those guys in there. It's just, it hasn't been a good defense overall, but Cade, last time we trashed a defense this bad, we lost 45 to three. So, well, (laughs) I think you saw the writing on the wall in that game and you were even more optimistic uh, than you probably wanted to be in that preview. Dustin, BYU is just, you know, again, I I would stack rank the last three teams that Oklahoma State has played. I would obviously put UCF far and away better, but there's a big gap between them and what I think BYU and Houston are. Yeah, I think BYU, Cincinnati, and Houston are all kind of at the bottom. I I would agree, but I think completely. UCF is more in that tech and, you know, uh, West Virginia. That's kind of where I see them. I still think, Kate, and maybe it's just to make my prediction at the beginning of the season look better. If Plumlee is 100% all year, I think they've got a couple more wins on the schedule. I would agree with that. And we're also totally forgetting about Baylor collapsing this season. So they are in the bottom as well. But yes. Um. Okay, are you ready to pick it? Yeah, I think so. Sorry for the short preview, guys. It's just they literally switched everything they did last game. So yeah. Uh, well, enjoy the long recap as you're traveling right. for your Thanksgiving holiday. Okay, so I've got Oklahoma State favored by 17 and a half in the over underline at 56.5. I know there's a chance that the weather could be bad. It looks like from the forecast that we're seeing now that it's gonna hold off. So it's just going to be cold, but not like the coldest it's ever been or anything. Just cold, which I'm I'm sure is not fun to play in. I wouldn't want to do it. Kate, I honestly, I wanted to ask you, I didn't write down a prediction because I am so confused by that line. So it makes me feel like, obviously I know Vegas sets these lines trying to get people to bet on one side or the other, but it honestly makes me feel like they know Retzloff is playing 
and that some other people may be banged up. So here's how I got to my, you know, score prediction. And I've I've now just started naming the score and wherever that lands is where it lands. I I mean, I don't see BYU covering 17 if Oklahoma State scores what I think they're going to score. And I've got it at 35. So that's a big number to cover. But I, I mean, I think Oklahoma State's defense is going to play really well. I think that they're going to carry some momentum into this week. So I, I will pick this score first, Dustin. I've got Oklahoma State 35 to 13. I think Oklahoma State covers again at home. I think the under is a safe bet here with the weather going to be cold and windy. I think I think both teams will handle it fine. But I just feel like without BYU having much of a downfield threat to throw the ball. I just think that's a bad matchup for Oklahoma State's defense. Like if you can do that, you can find success. And if you don't do that well, you you could have a really long day at 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 the park. So I think What was yours again? 35 to 13. Okay. I'm going to go I was deciding while you were talking. I was listening to you. It was a great breakdown. But I'm going to go 34-20. That's good. So no cover. So I have them scoring a little bit more than you, maybe like a garbage touchdown. Late. Yeah, I could totally man, see that. Kate, if the weather holds off, and I hate giving these second predictions. I do this like every week, and it's, it's just a bad move by me. But I could see, I truly could see 41-20. Yeah. I mean, I and then I, and then you're looking at that 17. <laughs> I was I was I'm I my conservative nature kicked in with 35. Like I I honestly feel like Oklahoma State's offense could could put up a number on Saturday. I was truly terrified to pick that UCF game because of how banged up I had heard the offensive line was. And this one, I just think that most of the guys aren't that banged up. That's kind of where I'm at. And I think it's worried about Ollie, but well, if you have to win this game without Ollie Gordon, then that's a totally different, totally different, you know, score prediction. So I'm, I'm going in the way I did with the UCF game, picking with the guys that played last week, if they play again this week, that's the score. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a chance on senior day, final game at home, if the weather holds off and it's just cold and maybe it's not as windy as they're projecting, I think it could get ugly. I, I would agree. I think I think BYU's pretty banged up. And I think I know they need to get this win to get to bowl eligibility, but I think they're pretty depressed. They're on a big time losing streak yeah. right now, which they could come back and, you know, rally up and get up for this game. But it's hard to do that in Boone Pickett Stadium. It is. Oklahoma State's what won eight won what? Like 18 out of the last 20 at home. Like I I this is a slam the door shut, get to the Big 12 title type of game. Yeah. And we will most likely record on our normal time, even with the Big 12 title game. If they play a team that they haven't played, which obviously, you know, Texas would be one of them. We'll we'll do the full preview. If they played a team that they've already played, we'll probably just talk about that game. <laughs> and if they get bit, left so. out, then we we may never record again, and we'll see what yeah. happens. If they get if they get left out, it may be the last episode of the podcast. <laughs> uh, well, Dustin. All right, Kate, do you want to wrap it up here? Yeah, I think so. With I think our... we've got. Before Dustin says a quick word from a sponsor, uh, 
can't believe it's already, you know, last regular season game and and getting into the uh, conference championship season. Every year I feel like I look up and it's like, oh, another football season with Dustin is over. So I, it's been a good one, man. It has been a good one. It got it got a little crazy with our schedule wise. On oh both my ends. gosh, really kind but, of a miracle that this you know was successful. But I know the listeners are like, we don't care about that at all. But well, it was the pod. Yeah. So wrap it up with our final sponsor, Wild Oak Lighting. You guys know if you're a listener. If not, if it's your first time listening to the podcast. Wild Oak Lighting is your authorized jellyfish lighting dealer for the greater Oklahoma City area, Stillwater, and several other Oklahoma markets. Jellyfish Lighting is a permanent but discreet color-changing LED lighting system for the exterior of your home. With 16 million different colors and patterns, Jellyfish Lighting can be used for Christmas, holiday, and accent lighting. And of course, Oklahoma State game day lighting. Basketball, football, don't just turn those lights on during football season when you have them you could make them bright orange all year round i had the jellyfish lights installed on my house i've talked about i've been setting them up on a different christmas theme and annoying everybody in my neighborhood every night they look awesome i'm sure the people out there are jealous in my neighborhood that don't have them i'll, I'll just assume so but definitely hit up the guys they're awesome they'll hook you up tell them you heard about it from the podcast quick installation process they make it easy you never have to worry about putting up and taking down your Christmas lights again. Yeah. Dustin, we appreciate all of the support from all of our wonderful sponsors this football season and uh, look forward to keeping the show going. Dustin, any final words from you? Just go pokes, BYU, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. I'll add a happy Thanksgiving in there as well. Oh, we'll yeah. see you, <laughs> if you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. At Feels Like 45 Pod, you can follow Dustin at Dust Dragoon, and you can follow me at Cade Webb. We will see you guys back here next week. Go, folks.